I remember talking to Alan and Alan's like, well, what do you think we should slow it down to? Cause he right. was thinking maybe 20%, 30%. I'm like, no, I think they should move as slow as flying Terran buildings, mm-hmm. which would be like a 95% speed <laughs> decrease. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. And, and he was not convinced. He's like, no, we can't do that. That's going to feel terrible. And I'm like, okay, like let's set up whatever design test you want. And I'm going to methodically prove to you that we have to do that. Hi everybody. This is Soren Johnson and you are listening to designer notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to Rob Pardo, who was formerly the Chief Creative Officer at Blizzard Entertainment. He is best known for his design work on StarCraft 1 and 2, WarCraft 3, and World of WarCraft. What's the first game you remember? What, what was the first impressions, time that made video games made an impression on you? Um, I, I guess... Where I would start was actually not with a video game, but when I was, uh, so I was up in Sacramento is where I was born, and that's kind of where I was growing up until I was like 10, and, um, you know, I just remember when I went down the street to my friend's house, you know, he had a big brother that lived in his house, you know, lived with him, obviously, and um, I remember one day going to, you know, his brother's room, this guy Rick, and on his table, he had all these uh, multicolored dice, and I'm just like, what are those? And, you know, it explained to me the whole concept between, like, Dungeons & Dragons, you know, the pen and paper game. And it it just kind of blew my mind of what that thing was. And I think that's when I, I first got into to really geeky sort of stuff, you know, from a game standpoint. And, you know, it was also around the same time that, obviously, video games are hitting. And, and I remember my dad taking me to the arcade and playing Space Invaders and Asteroids and kind of those early games and, and just being, you know, all in on those sorts of types of things. And then, you know, another one of my friends cross street got a Commodore 64 and, you know, started seeing the games that came out on that. So it's kind of like in that. So this would have been like 1983, 1984, something like Uh, that. I think it was in the late seventies actually, because I moved down to Southern California in 1980. So it had to be right before. Like, well, the C64 didn't come out till 82 or 83, I think. And then, yeah, then I think I was up for my summers then. And then I got my first computer in 84. Like, right. I know that for sure, because that's when I got my Apple IIc. Okay. So my grandfather got that for me, and I was super excited. And it was kind of funny, because um, I think one of the re- ways I persuaded my family to get me a computer was because I was already buying games. Right. You know, I was, like, buying Wizardry and Ultima, and, but I didn't even have a computer. <laughs> so what I would do is I'd buy these games... And then I'd go down to the local department store uh-huh. and I'd play them on the department store systems. And, you know, I'd be oh friends gosh. with a salesman. Uh-huh. And the salesman would let me go in after school and play the games on their computer because it was kind of a cool way to demo these computers to people. Right. So, yeah, I had a gaming collection before I ever had a computer. Wow. That's, yeah. that's creative. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was, that was back in a time when computers were... Yeah, I mean, it was definitely not a given that, that people had them. So you had to do lots of creative stuff. Um, yeah. 
play them. So it was was it RPGs that got you mostly. Yeah, I think so. I think for sure RPGs were kind of my first love when it comes to you know obviously Dungeons and Dragons is an RPG, and then when I started playing games, the idea of being able to play basically you know Dungeons and Dragon types things on a computer and playing like you know the first Wizardry. Um, I never really played the first Ultima. The first Ultima I got into was Ultima Two, actually. Okay, so that's a bizarre one. Uh, I mean, I, I that's guess. the one where like you're on Earth and you're like jumping through time. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. You go through the different time gates. Yeah, you know, and you have to kill Minax at the end. And I, I guess it's weird in a sense, but I mean, I, I thought it was really cool because right. the thing for me that I always just love about RPG worlds is, is not just the fantasy aspect. Obviously, you know, I love Tolkien, love Lord of the Rings, but but I actually always loved exploring really diverse worlds. Okay. You know, so even when I, um, you know, was running my own D&D campaigns, you know, like I, I really didn't like to be constrained to just like the world of Greyhawk or something. Right. Like I, I always loved stuff more like Planescape. You know, mm-hmm. like you go to these really crazy worlds where physics are different and creatures are different. And, you know, so I always loved those types of worlds. And I think that's what Ultima 2 had. You know, it, it really kind of explored a different imaginative space than just your typical medieval right. backdrop. Yeah, he definitely didn't limit himself to any yeah. any options, that's for sure. Um, did uh, So would you say generally you were then... Because it seems like there's a bit of a split between, like, the Wizardry games and the Ultima games. And, like, the Wizardry was very much about, um, uh, like, you know, the gameplay and the actual mechanics of, of D&D, whereas Ultima was about the exploration and, like, what's around the corner and what you're going to find. Um, and uh, is that is that what was really drawing you to, to RPGs? Um, I mean, I just love the idea of exploring different worlds. Like, I don't know, especially back then, if, if I was as much into you know, being drawn to games based on their game systems, mm-hmm. you know, as much as it was just exploring these interesting worlds. Cause I mean, like wizardry, you know, is very much just a dungeon crawl. Right. So it wasn't a world, but at the same time, you know, you got to explore this dungeon and you're trying to get to the bottom of it, you know, kind of the same idea, like the first Diablo or ultimate underworld was more of that sort of experience. And then I think with the Ultima series, yeah, you got to explore more of the world and you got to feel like you lived in this world. You got to feel like you're a hero of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't so micro. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, so when did you start creating your own campaigns then? Um, you know, it had to be in like the early eighties, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I definitely love playing Dungeons and Dragons, but the thing that, um, you know, once I started having a group of friends down in Southern California that all, I got all my friends into it when I was down in Southern California and, um, you know, we would take turns being kind of the dungeon master, but invariably as time wore on, they just wanted me to DM all the time. Right. So I kind of evolved from playing to pretty much always being the one that was constructing the, yeah. the campaign. You and do you, you feel like that was just because you were willing to put in the time to, to expand these worlds or? Yeah. I mean, you know, and I definitely think that was clearly that my first kind of real game design experience was doing that. And right. I just, I definitely had a lot of fun creating the worlds and playing with the game mechanics, you know, like even though, like I was never really a, a big uh, rules person in yeah. D&D, like I would pretty much bend and create my own version of D&D. You know, I'd take the rules I really liked and the class I liked, and then I'd just kind of expand on them and, and change the rules where I wanted to. And my would campaign. you do that on the fly, or is that something you would, like, prepare for ahead of time? A little bit of both. You know, sometimes it would be improvisational, and sometimes it would be, you know, something that I would set up rules and let people know. But one of the things that, that 
you know, I was really drawn to was actually designing campaigns where the rules broke, mm -hmm. you know, so like all my campaigns over time would end up being level, you know, level 18, level 20 characters and up because that's really where the rules stop in D&D. &D. Right. Like they would have experience levels and all their bonuses and daco charts that, that kind of stopped around level 20. So I actually really like doing, okay, well, our campaign, you start at level 20 and, you know, multiple years later, all the characters are like 35th level. Right. Wow. Um, because then, too, I feel like um, it becomes more about, um, you know, the design, really. It's more about the, the worlds and the story that you're crafting with your players and less about systematic, we have to follow what the player's handbook and the Dungeon Master Guide says. Right. Um, is there any specific campaign you made that, like, really stands out in your mind? Uh, well, it was kind of an ongoing saga. Okay. I mean, once I got to this, this level, I mean, I had this, um, you know, my friends... Um, you know, this is before Planescape came out, but I was actually kind of creating my own custom version of what that world ended up being, you know, because they would have like in Dragon Magazine, they would have, um, you know, like little articles about the nine levels of hell or what the 666 levels of the abyss is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of took that inspiration and created this whole campaign that started with the players exploring the abyss mm -hmm. and that they have to, you know, capture these these artifacts and relics and you know and what they have to go into the abyss to capture them because there's like these demon lords that are gonna steal them and then break down the walls between the abyss and the prime material plane so it's like this epic saga of like three four years that the, the players would you know be exploring this area oh. So you were definitely prime audience when Planescape actually did came out come out I assume you know sort of but you know I, I didn't because I made my own version of it yeah. and what they did didn't match what I did, mm -hmm. I actually didn't like it as much as you think I would hmm. because it, I'm like, no, that's not how it is. That's right. not how those planes were because I, I kind of created my own custom one and I thought it was really cool and really creative, but because it was so different than the version that I'd kind of made that it, it actually wasn't as appealing as you'd think. Now, so if you're seeing that I've made this and someone else made this commercial product, did you start thinking about game design as like something you could actually do at that point? Not really. Like, I don't know why it didn't occur to me. Like I was always into making creative things. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what I really thought I wanted to do was go and be like a movie director. Like that mm. was my dream job. Okay. And, um, you know, and that's, I had a couple friends in high school that we used to talk about that and, you know, maybe go to film school. And I, I think what ended up happening was, um, was that like a more plausible career? Is that why? You no, think? the funny thing. Well, here's the thing. Um, Were you in LA at this time? Yeah, like you yeah I'm okay. down in Southern California. Right. So. Like I ended up not trying to pursue that because it didn't seem like a plausible career. Like you know, I didn't know anyone that was in the industry. It, sure. You know, when I'd read about it, it seemed like it was more about who you knew rather than what you knew. Right. Um, you know, people who went to film school doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to end up in that industry. Yeah, well, it's definitely pretty strange to refer to filmmaking as a plausible career because that's... Right. <laughs> so, so it wasn't. It just was, um, it was an aspirational career. Yeah. And I think what had happened to me because, um, while obviously games were out, there wasn't really a lot of press around game makers yeah. back then. So... Where did you think they came from? It didn't occur to me. That, that's kind of the, the weird thing. I mean, I, I knew there was programmers, and, and I was never, um, 
you know, I'd done some really basic programming and playing around with stuff, but I was, that was just never something that I got into. Yeah. So like, I don't have a software engineering background and even the people that I knew that made games, they were all programmers. So again, it didn't really seem like a plausible career choice to me. Yep. Um, and then when I got into college, you know, I made the decision instead, oh, I'm going to pursue like law, <laughs> like the total opposite because it just, because <laughs> that did seem like a more understandable career path. Right. You know, it's like, well, if you go to law school and you're really smart and you're persuasive, then that just seems like a viable career choice that. Why, why law compared to all the other? Um, because I think, I mean, they're, they're, it's kind of funny to, to compare it like this, but I feel like there's kind of game designing elements with law. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about kind rules of, and interpretations. Yeah, and... Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I really liked when I was taking classes at a University of California, Irvine, you know, I'd take classes on criminal law and constitutional law. And, and I, I did find it really interesting. I found it really interesting that there's all this case law. And it's how you interpret it and how you argue your case and, you know, are you persuasive? And you have two sides that are very credible, right? you know, in this adversarial process, you know, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of like playing a game and doing game design. Sure. So it kind of exercises some of the same sort of muscles in yeah. a weird way. Well, D&D is notorious for there are a number of different ways you can interpret a rule and like yeah. what it's not, a, it's not a closed design at all, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What uh, what other games were you playing during this this period? Like, um, I mean, I, I you know definitely play a lot of different types of games. Like, you know, I'd go to the the arcade when I was younger for sure, up in Sacramento, and uh, I they would um, pay me like four dollars and quarters to come in half an hour before the arcade opened, and I'd Windex down all the machines and mm-hmm. clean up the place, and that was just the best job ever because I got paid in quarters, which I'd immediately give right back to the arcade. You know how to get connected with the right people. <laughs> yeah, it was... Well, you know, I was like so into it, so... Yeah. And... Um, Were you very, very good at arcade games at that age? Yeah. No, I, I was... I've always been good at playing games. I mean, that's the funny thing is that I think if... Um, if esports were a thing when I was a kid, I could totally mm-hmm. have seen going down that path. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I was never, let's say, good at software engineering, but I was always good at playing games. Right. Like I was always very, very good at breaking down systems. I, I had good Twitch skills. Um, you know, so it didn't matter what the game was. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be video games. Like, you know, I used to play Risk with my friends mm-hmm. or board games. And, and I won a lot more than... Then I, I lost it <laughs> right. pretty much any game. Or even like another game I well, that's, that's interesting because Risk is also very much social skill of, yeah. of how you're going to win, which is like a very a whole other level. But right, go ahead. Well, but it, yeah, it didn't even matter. I mean, like another game I used to play with my dad's friends was this game called uh, Status Pro Baseball. Mm-hmm. And it was this um, board game slash card game um, where you actually drafted a team right. of baseball players. It's almost like fantasy sports before there was fantasy sports, but it was there was um, there was rules to it. So you dropped your players, and then there would be um, like a random number would come up, and then you would refer to your card to find out if you got a base hit or a strikeout or whatever it was. And like I remember just being fascinated by that and how am I going to draft my team and and not getting caught up in you know how good is the player in real life. But right. really focusing on what are the on numbers? What are the numbers, and right. what does that mean to winning this game? You know, and I'd play that, and you know, I remember the my dad's friends had it in television, and we'd actually because they were all really into sports, so I got really into sports and sports games with them. 
Right. And, you know, we'd have the Intellivision baseball game and we'd actually have leagues. So, mm-hmm. we'd, you know, we'd actually play each other in a tournament structure. And you wow. know, I'd usually be the, the top of that league. And, and then, you know, when I was playing computer games, you know, I'd play everything from RPGs to strategy games to, you know, like Civilization. I remember being one of my favorite games. You know, like if I was looking at like top five games of all time, I'm sure Civilization would be in there. Right. You know, played a lot of Railroad Tycoon, you yeah. know, those types of games. That's an incredible game. Yeah. So, you know, um, what else? I and mean, there's really probably not a genre of game that were you I didn't a, get into at some point. If you, you Were you a sports fan or was that just simply a great format for... No, I've always been a sports fan. I okay. still like I still play recreational ice hockey. No, oh, awesome. Yeah, once a week. So I was one of those weird, you know, jock nerds. Right. right. <laughs> so I was really into like video games and computers and everything else. But I, I played pretty much every sport. Like if I was it, actually pretty athletic. If it could be competitive, you were kind of there. Yeah, that's totally true. Like I've always been super competitive, and I think that's because of my dad. Like my dad, he's uh, he he's probably competitive to a fault, and uh, instilled that in me. Like. Like we would compete in it in a lot of different things. Like we'd play chess or we'd play video games and, and I always would remember that he would never ever let me win. <laughs> right. So so if I beat him it was legit. Right. And if I started winning at some activity we we're doing, then mysteriously we would stop doing that. <laughs> so yeah. be it video games or when I get really good at ice hockey, suddenly we don't go ice skating. I mean <laughs> but you know, at the same time though, you you want to win so bad because like you're dad and I, I got to figure out how to beat him. <laughs> yeah. And I think games were the area that I, I was able to uh, get rid of the age disadvantage because you know, it's sports, you know, sure. bigger and stronger and faster. So there's only so much you can do yeah. But when you get into like board games or video games, then suddenly that, you know, it is an area that you can beat your dad. At. Yeah. So back in the eighties, you know, multiplayer, uh, competitive competitive video games were often a technical challenge, um, you know, networking and, and for other reasons. Um, so when that started to pop up in like I guess the early mid nineties, is that something that attracted your attention immediately? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, I mean where I I finally figured out that I want to make games was mm-hmm. um, you know in, in college because I was um, managing a software et cetera store. Okay. And my assistant manager ended up getting a job at Interplay Productions as, oh, a, as a game okay. tester. Right. And that's when it finally went, oh, this is like a- that might be a viable thing to do. Like I'd been Ooh. into games my whole life, but it, that was the first time it occurred to me, oh, I might actually be able to do that for a living. So I ended up, you know, applying there also and ended up, um, you know, getting hired and was a game tester and that's when I really started playing a lot more multiplayer gaming because mm-hmm. like you said like before that you know it was pretty much you had to have like a LAN to yeah. play like there wasn't really there wasn't an internet so you couldn't play like someone that was a city away or something so and so unless you had friends that had multiple computers you couldn't really do it I mean obviously there's console games so I did plenty of like right. multiplayer that way on the couch together but you know multiplayer computer games it probably wasn't until I started working at Interplay that I really got to do that a lot because we'd have a LAN set up and we'd be playing Doom with each other um, you know the game that we had in test at the time was the the first Descent mm-hmm. which you know I loved and we played a ton of that so that's probably where I, I really started playing a lot more of like multiplayer computer games Right. So. Yeah. And uh, so what, uh, okay, so what, uh, how long were you at Interplay then? Uh, two years. Two years? Yeah, okay. so I was in test for about three months, 
And then I ended up becoming like an assistant producer. And this was producer. while you were in college? Yeah. Yeah. I was finishing up at a university of California, Irvine uh-huh. and you know, I was doing like a pre-law sort of degree. And one of the things that, um, you have to do in that program is do a field study where uh-huh. you're, uh, working with another company or a group, you know, kind of in your field. So I got them to approve my field study. So I actually was working in the, you know, like a few hours a week in the interplay legal department, <laughs> writing <laughs> development contracts. So I kind of oh, managed to merge the two together. That's a little a bit. Creative, creative use of your, uh, yeah, <laughs> your prereq. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. So, so at that point, you know, theoretically you were going to go to law school yeah. When you left college, then you got a testing job like yeah. near the end and you kind of just didn't look back. Yeah, that right? that's pretty much the case. Well, I mean, I think almost from the moment I got into interplay and certainly by the time I got into development, I knew that's where I wanted to be. And the law thing was totally pushed off because, you know, how did your family respond to that? You know, yeah, with my family, um, you know, like I have divorced parents and I was an only child and there wasn't really a lot of pressure on me to do one thing or another. Mm-hmm. You know, they just wanted me to, you know, be able to take care of myself and be independent, I think, is, right. is all they really cared about. And I think, um, you know, there wasn't really a lot of understanding, of course, what the video game industry was. And I remember like my dad was funny. He'd always like every year I'd get the same birthday present from him, which is this book called what color is your parachute, which is like a job hunting book (laughs) every year. So I remember I I used to always get that book from him until I'd been in the game industry. I think about two or three years. Right, right. Just in case you need this, here it is. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was about two or three years into my game industry career that I, I finally stopped getting that book. So I'm like, Oh, my dad must think that I actually <laughs> figured something out. This, this could work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, did you did you immediately feel like like I'm okay? I'm in the games industry, but I also I want to be a, I want to be a designer. Is that immediately what you wanted to do? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I didn't. I was still learning what development was and who did what roles and things like that. So I think at Interplay um, is a little more about production sort of culture. So. Mm-hmm. It seemed like the right way to make creative decisions on a game was the production path. And I think that probably was mostly true at Interplay. So that's okay. where I, I kind of pointed myself first. And the other thing that I think... They had they had designer positions, but they... Not a lot, though. Because, again, like at that point in the industry, I think game design was really only starting to become a discipline on its own. Right. You know, for the most part, I think you still had teams that were, um, you know, programmers and artists... And right. a producer, project manager, and they kind of, you know, did the design together or it would fall to either like the lead programmer or the producer to do the design. So there wasn't really a big game design discipline yet to point myself at. But right. I do think that that's, that, that was the job I wanted to do. And if it was a thing, I totally would have been like, okay, that's, that's where I want to be. Right. But it really wasn't until Blizzard that I got to focus on that. Hundred percent. Okay. So were you were you spent some time trying to move up the production ranks mm-hmm. within Interplay? Yeah. Um, what what game did you work on? Some specific games? Or? Yeah. No, I did a, a bunch of random stuff. I mean, Interplay at that time period was um, growing a lot, and mm-hmm. I think that's ultimately you know probably would this be like ninety four ish, ninety five? Yeah. Yeah. It's about yeah exactly, and that is like ninety four to ninety six is I think when I was there. Okay. And um, they. 
they were have a lot of Fallout then? Is that, is that yeah, I was there when Fallout was, was being done. But, I mean, that was one of the standouts. But, I mean, what really was happening at Interplay was they had um, become very aggressive with third-party publishing. Okay. And um, they had a lot of games on the docket. And I think that that was probably what ultimately led to their downfall was they tried to do too many things and they kind of lost their focus. And I think I went from... You know, I, I ended up moving in development, working on this weird um, full motion video game mm. called Cyberhood and okay. <laughs> um, with this Hollywood producer that they had hired at Interplay to, to do this game. And I was his assistant and that ended up not working out. But, but what happens at Interplay? It sounds, sounds very quintessentially mid-90s video yeah, game development. Yeah. yeah, totally. And what happens though at Interplay is um, if you show competence and you know ability then you just start acquiring things you become a magnet for projects okay so so i definitely ended up just acquiring a bunch of random products that none of them were products that um i was creatively driving i you know my job was really just to get them over the finish line so i was working with developers from england or australia or in the u.s i mean it was just kind of this hodgepodge of different products you know it's like i was doing this racing game called whiplash you know i was um at one point i was doing this i did a tempest remix or remake called tempest x Mm -hmm. you know for playstation you know i just had a variety of titles i had to get a casper game over the finish line where the producer left the company so it was very much a you know it's not about the quality level of these products like you have to hit ship dates and you have to get these things out and i always found it really strange that um you know, junior producers like I was at the time are the ones that are telling these developers mm. what they should be doing, which just seemed really backwards because, but that's just how the industry runs, which I still find strange that the third party producers probably have the least amount of development experience right. at the publisher level, but they're the ones that ultimately are telling the developers what to do. Were you self-conscious at that point being so no, young or no. you were confident about what you... Yeah, I, I thought I knew it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, you got to change this and you should change that. And, you know, like, yeah, I, I, did, I didn't know, uh, you know, t- 10% of what I thought I knew. <laughs> right, right. You know, because, you know, you, you just, that's your job and you're being told, oh, you got to get these things over the finish line. And, and I, don't, I don't think that's a great way to learn how to make games. Right. You know, and I, and what happened was, um, my department boss in the, they were starting to do divisions with interplay. Like that's when black Isle started. Um, so I was in the arcade action division and my boss ended up going off and doing his own startup. And then he recruited me to go work for him. And that seemed like the best opportunity. Like now I'm going to learn how to actually make games versus just, you know, be trying to get them out the door. Yeah. Get them out the door and just, you know, from afar, be talking to like a producer at a, you know, development house. So now I finally got to go do what I thought was going to be the job I wanted to do. Um, and it was in some ways, you know, now I'm starting to be more of a producer designer. What, what company was this? Uh, point of view. Point of view. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it was a smaller company. I don't think they're around anymore, but I'm not positive. Um, and I think, you know, and what type of games were they trying to make? Well, that's the thing. So, um, 
kind of the vision was, you know, and I already at this point had become a pretty big fan of like Blizzard games because when I was okay. at Interplay, you know, Warcraft 1 and 2 had already come out. Right. Um, and then when I was at Point of View, um, Diablo came out. So I was already kind of a, a fan of that studio. And what I thought we were going to do at Point of View was, was try to have that sort of arc. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to start by, you know, we're going to bootstrap and we're going to like, you know, take on some work for hire stuff and do ports and conversions. But the idea was, you know, that's just the first couple years. And then we're going to start putting aside money so that we can start developing our own IP, our own product. So that, that was what was in my head. And I do think that's what, um, you know, my boss Mark's idea was, but I think his two partners who are software engineers, I think they were actually kind of fine with making money and doing a lot of work for higher stuff. So, you know, so it ended up not really being what I wanted to do, you know, so what did that, what did that, what did that even mean? Like practically? Well, again, it ended up being a different version of what I was doing interplay, but on the other side, but again, it's mostly conversions like, Oh, here's mortal Kombat. Can you port it over to the PC? Yep. And then now, now I'm on the other side of the phone talking to some young producer at Virgin Interactive or at Midway or something like that, you know, telling them when their conversion is going to be done, you know, which again is not what I, I was in it for, you know, and I thought it was going to be a temporary thing. And then it became more and more clear that, okay, I think that's actually what point of view kind of wants to do because, you know, they were making a good living at doing it. Right. After that, I assume you moved on to Blizzard. Mm-hmm. So how did that come about? Yeah, so that was kind of interesting because um, one of the the ideas we had at Point of View was to maybe license the Warcraft 2 engine and do an RTS, um, but with more of an Asian mythos. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I actually worked up a whole design document and, and we had Alan Adham and Bill Roper up to Point of View and we okay. pushed them the whole concept. And, um, you know, they ended up not being interested in doing that with us, but I you know, must have impressed Alan enough with the pitch that I ended up having a follow-up. Were you essentially positioned as the, the designer? I don't yeah, know if they had exactly. the title of that, of yeah, that yeah. game, right? Okay. Yeah. I was the one that kind of was doing the pitch and, you know, I'd written up the whole design document and everything. And, uh, I had a follow-up meeting with Alan afterwards where he tried to recruit me, but it was funny <laughs> because he thought I was a software engineer. And then when he found out I wasn't a software engineer, then didn't seem to be as interested at the time. <laughs> Because did again, they, they didn't really have designers. Did they have yet. designers then? No. Not, not really. No. Like Alan was really one of the only designers, and he had a software engineering background. I mean, when he started at Blizzard, he did code, and then once the company got bigger, he stopped. But he was really their main design person at Blizzard, and and they had, um, I think they had a couple like level designers, but they didn't really have very many game designers yet. They they started to later, um, but then, you know. After about a year into Point of View, and I wasn't real happy, I ended up um, leaving Point of View, and then I called Alan. And I'm like, well, you know, I really like you guys' games, and, you know, is there anything that you guys have available? And what Alan decided to do was bring me into the company as a, uh, just on uh, basically an hourly wage, as a almost like a contract designer. Mm-hmm. And um, there wasn't really a job there. But he, you know, he didn't know what to do with me. So he basically put me in the QA department and just had me play StarCraft because that's what was in development at the time. Right. Play StarCraft and just send me directly qualitative feedback on what you think about the game. Right. So it was very unstructured. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, pretty much just I'm going to pay you by the hour and log your hours and we'll just see where it goes. Wow. That sounds like a, you must have been pretty excited. Yeah. No, I, I was pretty excited. Um, it's kind of an unusual job. But, yeah. Uh, um, Wow. Uh, 
But what ended up kind of happening was, um, you know, I, I'd give them feedback about all kinds of things, yeah. you know, and, and they knew too, because, um, then they just wanted feedback. They weren't asking you to try to come just, up with specific suggestions or, uh, I mean, I would start getting assignments like Alan would mm. have me look at areas of the game or like one of the things that would start happening too is, um, Alan was so, um, meticulous. Like this is something I, I think really leads to that blizzard polish that everyone knows is that, um, you know, he would um, oftentimes use me as the person to to load up the game so we could just test random interactions. You know, it'd be like, you know, okay, join this game with me. Okay, now you're going to play Terran and I'm going to play Protoss and we're going to see what happens when you use a science vessel and you defense a matrix this unit and how does that interact with Psy Storm? Like, it was very something that I think nowadays we get outsourced almost entirely to QA, but the thing mm-hmm. I, I think... Alan was so meticulous, he wanted to do it himself. And he wanted sure. to make sure that all the rules and the ways, you know, the order of operations and how all these different unit interactions work, that they were correct and they were coded the right way and it made right. sense. So and I ended up talking through a lot of that with him and just be the person that would be on the phone so that he could test those things out. Okay. But then um, a lot of what my feedbacks naturally started going towards was game balance. Right. You know, what did, so what did StarCraft look like when you joined? Like where was it in its development, and what was different from what we're what we know as StarCraft now? I mean, it was it was pretty far along. Like it, you know, I joined in the last half of the project, but um, it had a lot of technical challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I assume the core idea of the you know very asymmetrical three races yeah. was very well. The game the game was all in. Yeah. Like um, not necessarily every single unit or every single building, but it was it was all structurally there. Um, the problem was there's a lot of technical challenges with the game, and the game wasn't necessarily playable every day. You know, that was one of the big challenges, I just think, with that whole development. And I think Blizzard, after StarCraft now, has really made it a thing that the game would, has to be playable every it day. It would break, or the performance yeah. was bad enough, or... Combination. Yeah. Pathing, pathfinding was a mm. huge issue. Like, yep. pathfinding wasn't really a solved thing until probably you know, two weeks before the game launched. Wow. You know, that was a huge headache all through development. And that's not just a technical thing. Like, the pathing could work, but it might not be yeah. fun at all, right? Like, right. it might screw up the game. Yeah, yeah and, and pathfinding is a really good example of something that um, is really important to game balance, but it's never going to be in a spreadsheet. Yeah. So it's just something that you have to have an intuitive sense of how that's affecting the game balance and how to modify unit behaviors or stats based on the pathfinding. Right. But a lot of my feedback, like I said, ended up being more and more game balance focused. And, um, you know, I was, you know, you know, definitely the best StarCraft player in the studio, even better than all the other game testers. But, but I still had a sense of balance. Like, I think what happens a lot of times with um, people that are really good at playing games, they don't necessarily understand how to make the decisions to, to balance the game. Like, they might be really good as a player. But and they know how to kind of utilize the rules to their advantage, but that's different than setting up the rules to have interesting game balance. So I ended up having a sense for that, and I would, you know, make it a point that I play all three races. You know, I, a lot of people would just play one of the races and become good at it, and then they again their feedback would end up being flawed because they don't really have the same depth with the other races. And for me, I was I always made sure to play all three races, didn't have a favorite, and give lots of balance feedback. And then, you know, very, not too long after that, Alan um, started having me go to what were called strike team meetings. Mm-hmm. Was there anyone else like you at, at Blizzard? No, not really. Um, I mean, they had a, the lead designer on the title was James Finney. Okay. So, I mean, you know, and he was, 
just a game designer, so he wasn't a coder or an artist. So he he was, the, and he was a very class, just like classically the lead designer of the game. Because I, I guess well, I never, I, he, I felt I always felt like StarCraft was a game where one of the biggest games out there where I was unclear who designed it. Well, that's kind of Blizzard culture, sure. especially in that era. Because honestly, um, Alan was the driving force in okay. a lot of ways. Like I, I think. Um, there's some similarities to like how I see Bungie also does things. Like I think they have similar sort of processes where at that era is a very engineering based culture. Right. And James, because you literally could not make that type of game unless you had great programmers. Right. Yeah. Well, and James, he, he was the lead designer, but Alan was also kind of a lead designer, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, but Alan was over the whole project. He was like, you know, designer slash exec producer slash, you know, you know, software engineer, like he didn't actually do code on Starcraft, but you know, he right. was kind of a, you know, really the, you know, the design creative force. Was there a split of like someone focusing on campaign versus someone focusing on? Yeah. Like, so I think a good example there is James was probably more focused on the campaign than Alan was. And Alan right. would kind of swoop in at the end and get really involved. But like one of the things they did process wise was they'd have a strike team. So mm-hmm. Alan would lead the strike team and, um, he would have, you know, basically just who he thought. What does the strike team mean exactly? Yeah, so it's almost like your design council over the game would be the way to look at it. But it's not like a a limited scope, like we're focusing on this one specific problem for a couple weeks. It's more like... I mean, basically just be whatever is on Alan's list of love. Like what's kind of bubbled up that he feels like is really important to be talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, so it could be game balance, it could be the campaign, it could be... You know, you're, you're the people trying to get results fast for what he thinks is important, Basically, we're his advisory board mm-hmm. to help him talk through design problems with the game, is another way to look at it. Okay. All right. And so he brought me into the strike team, and it was, um, at that time, it was him, James Finney, me, and then Mike O'Brien. And Mike O'Brien, I mean, it's a good example. Like, Mo wasn't um, one of the he wasn't a lead on the project, but he was, um, again, had a really good design mind and he was the, basically the software engineer on Battle.net. Okay. And then me contract game designer from across the street, you know, sitting over in QA and then Alan and James. So like Alan just wanted the people there that he felt could talk through these things and he didn't really care what their authority was or whatever on the project. Right. So, you know, we just, were there other, I mean, that seems like a pretty important, um, group mm-hmm. um were there were there other people who kind of wanted to be part of that or like how yeah no for sure but i, I you know alan um you know he he would just put the people on there he thought needed to be there like right. it wasn't really like there wasn't a lot of real politics back then because the team was smaller but certainly there and earlier in the project the strike team i think was bigger before i got there and i think he would adjust the attendance of who is sitting on that team based on where the game is at and whose opinion really needs to be represented. Right. Are there some things that stand out to you about how the game used to work when you got there and that you, you played a big role in, in changing? Well, I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, you know, I ended up obviously being very passionate about the game balance and that's where I did a lot of focus when I was there on the original game. Um, but that wasn't really the most important thing in everyone's mind about that game. Right. You know, I think a lot of people in retrospect think of, Oh, Starcraft's this great balanced game, but 
that wasn't like a big core design pillar. It wasn't right. like we're going to make the most balanced. At the time, game. you were trying to make it work. You just trying to make it fun, right? Yeah. Well, and, and I just ended up being super passionate about this this one area of the game. But you know, you think about it again. Like if if game balance had been one of the core pillars, they wouldn't have some dude off the street that they're <laughs> you know, assigned to that job, right? Yeah, yeah. So it just ended up being something that I had an aptitude for and was really passionate about. And over time, persuaded them to let me make more and more changes and so we're, ended up being successful. Did that come down to you were literally tuning values directly or you were... Over time. Over time, I, I became... You know, they would give me more and more rope until uh-huh. I got to the place where I could literally just start editing stuff. And, and that was what, one of the things, too, was the game wasn't really set up that well to easily make balance tuning. Okay. You know, a lot there of times you There have, weren't data files or no. it was there like was hard-coded or... Somewhat. I mean, it was a combination of things. They definitely had, um, they had a spreadsheet that you could export and adjust certain values. Okay. But there's a lot of areas that, yeah, you have to go to the programmer and have them adjust something. Like, not everything was easily tunable. Right. And I think in a lot of ways, because I got so into the weeds on getting into all that stuff, um, the programmers on future projects started developing things much more data driven because they didn't want me in their office at two in the morning, making them change values all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think that actually very much kind of ended up changing. Yeah. The, it the seems like everything, the whole industry kind of transitioned to data driven stuff like yeah. three or four years after this period. Yeah. And, uh, it seemed like kind of like the obvious thing to do. Did was there a moment at this time when you kind of wished you could program or thought about learning to program? I, I kind of always did, to be honest. Like that, okay. like I've always considered a, like as a game designer, I think the more jobs you can do on the team, the better you'll ultimately be as a game designer. Because I think that the thing is, it allows you to iterate more autonomously. Right. You know, and um, so yeah, I mean, I wish I had more art aptitude. I wish I could make sound effects. I wish I could do programming, but for, for Did you ever reason, do algorithmic stuff work? Uh, not really. Yeah. I mean, like as a game designer, it's kind of weird. Like, um, I have a really good intuitive sense of a lot of different things. I'm very analytical. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really have any classical training like in right. programming or math, but, but math's a really good example too, where it's like, I'm very intuitive about math though. And right. I'll actually catch people like programmers or statisticians. I'll, I'll catch their mistakes sometimes, even though I, I don't know why it's a mistake, but I'll be like, that doesn't look right. Sure. <laughs> so I've just always had a really intuitive sense and I'm really analytical, but yeah, not a lot of like real training though. Right. Okay. So at this, you know, at this point you were, you were starting to get to tune values directly. Were there any sort of big major changes that you had to push strongly for because they would have evolved. Like I'm trying to get it yeah. maybe like one or two clear, a, clear examples that like people who play a, Starcraft would understand. Well, there's a, there's a couple that was a couple interesting stories. Like, um, one, I remember, um, so during the original Starcraft, um, you know, there's the overlord unit on the Zerg, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was really, um, powerful about that unit was that you started with one, so it was part of your starting units, and it could move at a pretty fast rate, you know, as a flying unit. Right. And um, and what I, I kind of realized was really powerful about it was it gave you such an enormous reconnaissance advantage mm-hmm. to be able to basically sit your overlord over someone else's base and know what their build order was. Yeah. And, and again, like build orders, you know, is now a term, but mm-hmm. back in this era, like mm-hmm. RTSs hadn't 
Could people have. haven't mastered them enough right. to really be thinking about things like build orders and how that stuff works yet. So um, what I would realize is anytime I play Zerg, I, I'm practically unbeatable. Yeah. Because I would know what you're doing and you don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And I could modify my build order totally based on how you're evolving, you know, what strategy you're going for. Yeah. Well, visibility information is important, but it's also extremely difficult to quantify like right. how that affects the, the, the game balance. Yeah, totally. So what I, I really had to push hard to to get those things slowed down. And was, I remember talking to Alan, and Alan's like, well, what do you think we should slow it down to? Because he right. was thinking maybe 20%, 30%. I'm like, no, I think they should move as slow as flying Terran buildings, mm-hmm. which would be like a 95% <laughs> speed decrease. Wow, that's huge. Yeah. And, and he was not convinced. He's like, no, we can't do that. That's going to feel terrible. And I'm like okay, like let's set up whatever design test you want. And I'm going to right. methodically prove to you that we have to do that. That's and eventually did. he got on board and then we added in, you know, uh, an upgrade where you could upgrade the overlord to faster speed in the late game and then uh-huh. to late game. So you could get the speed back. So it still was a decent transport, but it really nerfed that, that early reconnaissance advantage. So like, that's a very micro specific one that, that right. I yeah. really had to fight for it. That, that's interesting. Sid has the classic rule of thumb of like, you know, doubling and halving values. Yeah. And like, that's, that's, <laughs> that's taking it to a new level right there. No, I, I mean, it was just super important, but it's like you said, like, it's very hard when it comes to like, you know, information, like how do you quantify the game balance and the advantage there? Yeah. But were you, a, was there, um, did you have a sense at this point about how much you guys could understand the game? From only like what, what was your own limitations of understanding the game balance from the fact that you were, I assume, mostly just playing the game internally, mm-hmm. right? Like until like what did, did once you we understand? Once the beta, though, we we actually because we had Battle.net at that point, so okay. Once I got into the beta, I could play people outside the company as well. Okay, actually, I didn't oh, I didn't know that Starcraft went through that process. How long did that last? Um, I think about three months, maybe okay. less. Like two, probably two and a half months or so. And what did you guys do? Did you guys release like a temporary, like how did you get it to people? Yeah, I mean, it's not dissimilar to how it is today. I mean, you you give people codes and then they could get on the battle net and play the game. They download like a reduced version of the game or whatever or like something. Yeah, the version without the campaign. Right, okay. Um, What do you remember? Like, did you learn something quickly, like once people outside of the game, outside of the company started playing it, or were a lot of your assumptions think, validated? Or I think what um, what I really like, I don't know if there's specific things. I'm sure there were. It's just you know it's twenty so years long. ago now. Yeah. But um, but I do remember the thing that that helped a lot was how the much accelerated proliferation of um, tactics and strategy. Like the, the meta really started evolving much faster, which I thought was great from a game balance point of view, because I think what happens inside the studio mm-hmm. is, um, you know, there's a limited number of really great players. Yeah. And then there's a further subset of people that are creative with their strategies, because I think even when players are really good, oftentimes you'll find that they only play the game and, you know, they have a very specific, specific way, build order yeah. and they play it, but they aren't necessarily trying to be creative with strategies. And, and that's where I think betas really help you a lot because you just get a lot more players and, yeah. you, and you want to start finding those people that are very creative. Like it's not enough to win, 
they actually want to win in ways that other people don't win in. And that's those are the people you really want to find and start playing games with them because then you're going to start identifying areas of the game balance that you might not find until three months after release unless those players existed. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I'm concerned about with my, my current game in that, um, you know, we're, the group that we play is, is about, you know, 10, 10 people, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And there's basically, you'd say, there's like two or three of them who are essentially the people who, who typically end up winning. Yeah. And everyone else is kind of like imitating what those people are doing. Right. Right. But who's to say what, what else is possible? Yeah. Right. Well, like a really funny example is, um, is actually Tom Cadwell because mm-hmm. he was um, in the StarCraft community before he ended up getting hired at Blizzard. Now, obviously, he's a riot, but um, he he was starting to become a really well-known player um, by the tag of Zilius, and mm-hmm. he kind of pioneered this really unique strategy dealing with the Reaver unit. You know, the Reavers are those kind of big mechanical slugs that fire out these huge um, explosive shots, and. The thing about the Reaver is they're um, they're super slow, so they're kind of a siege unit. So they have very limited mobility, which means that if you you know get your units on, they they die really fast. So it, it felt really balanced. But what Tom did is he combined it with a transport unit with the shuttle, and he would drop the Reaver out mm-hmm. of the shuttle. It would take one shot, and then it instantly suck the Reaver back up into the shuttle, and it almost turned it into this oh, flying, yeah. fast moving siege unit. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And, you know, it's like strategies like that are really unique and you just don't, don't find those unless you have players that are really creative. And then I had to go in and, you know, and then you have to be really careful. It's like, okay, should you change it or should you not? Yeah. And how do you change it? I mean, that's what I always find is really interesting about making balanced decisions. It's, do you make the change and how do you affect it? Because you don't want to like, like I thought the strategy was cool. Like, you know, it's like one of the things. I always thought was really important with RTS games is you don't want to come in with the nerf hammer and eliminate yep. creative strategies. You actually want creative strategies. You just need to, to have them have counters. So in that one, if I remember right, what I ended up having to do was, um, so I think I'm not even sure if I remember the change now, but if I remember right, I think when you dropped the, the reaver, there's a slight cool up period before it can fire. Sure. So, so that was basically what I had to put in there. So you know, it keeps its basic ability. It just in this one circumstance. Yeah. And, and you, and, but you did decide essentially that you did want, you did not want players to play like that. Well, I wanted them to, it's just, um, it was just a little bit too overpowered. Okay. I mean, so like, you were, you thought like players should be dropping them down, firing and picking them back up. Just, it had to be not super, super overpowered. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes you do have to eliminate strategies, but for the most part, I almost always wanted to keep the creativeness. Like there's always the outcry over strategies like that. Oh, you just have to get rid of it. And I, that's never been my design philosophy. Like RTS is like, um, you know, some of the more famous types of tactics that oftentimes are not popular among the player base is like rush strategies, you mm-hmm. know, like, um, like one of the really popular Starcraft strategies was, um, doing either a four pool or a six pool with your Zerg, right. where basically you put the spawning pool down super fast and you just get out, you know, first batch of Zerglings and you basically give up all your economy yep. and take out the player in the first two minutes. Um, which again, I actually am a big fan of rush strategies. I actually think, um, rush Rush strategies are important because it adds a whole another axis to how you can you know play the game and it stops players from always going for a tech strategy so it adds that axis but players hate getting killed in the first two minutes yeah. they feel like the game's unfair and then they're up on the forums but you know it's like I actually like to preserve strategies like another really good example is offensive towering you know another one that if someone manages 
to plant the offensive offensive tower net like outside of your base, yep. then you're yep. pretty much going to die. Yeah, like, you're they're screwed. It. But it's like this delayed death because like once you see it happen, you're like, oh, I'm screwed. But it takes a while before you finally actually die. <laughs> and then people again, they're like, oh, that's bullshit strategy and you should get rid of it. But again, it's like I'd rather have all these things in the game because I think that's what adds to interesting depth. Because there's a couple things in both of those examples that occurred to me that I might have made a different decision in the sense that, like for the, the Reaver strategy, um, I often am afraid of allowing these strategies that are extremely difficult to pull off in like a literally in a, like a dexterity as a question of dexterity yeah. or, or even, I mean, obviously like a uh, sieve is not a dexterity based game, but there are strategies that are, that feel like annoying. Yeah. Like, uh, yes, I can go through all my cities every turn to like pull off, you know, yeah. plus, plus one food, you know, every, every other turn or whatnot. And so that is the ult that it, that is, the best way to play, but it's not actually fun to go through this, this process. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how tricky it is to drop a reaver and pick it back up and drop a reaver and pick it back, mm-hmm. up, back up. But I could see trying to get rid of that simply, you know, in terms of, you know, most people are just going to, are, most people are not going to be capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know at Blizzard, that's, you guys have kind of accepted that with Starcraft, right? Mm-hmm. That dexterity is a big part of the game. Yeah, and that's totally, definitely one of the things about StarCraft. And another really good example is, um, so when we used to play StarCraft back in development, we we did not play it at the fastest um, game speed. Mm. That was something that we thought was, no one's ever going to play it at this speed. And we'd always play it at like, it's like one notch above middle was like fast, I think is what the game speed was called. And that's what we play it at. But then... Once it got kind of out in the wild, we found that everyone wanted to play it at the fastest speed. And that, right. and that even more so made dexterity an important part of being a good player in StarCraft. So, you know, so some of that was just evolution of how the players took it. How did that happen amongst the community? People just, everyone just started picking the fastest speed because they, yeah. just, they just wanted the games to get through the games as quick as possible? Yeah. Like, I don't know what the, the psychology there is, but certainly it just seemed like people are going to play at the fastest speed that is available. Yeah. And I think we gave them an even faster speed. They would have played even faster. And it, it definitely starts skewing like what's the balance of strategy versus dexterity. Right. But that became what people really wanted out of the game. So, you know, we accommodated it. (laughs) Wow. Do you feel like the right answer would be to give faster speeds then because people want it? Or was there a point where you feel like this is no longer what we feel like is a good experience? I mean, I definitely, you know, we could have given them even faster and faster. So, I mean, there is a limit. Um, I, I did not personally enjoy playing it at as, as fast as speed. So, so I just think it's a judgment call in that particular case, you know, and seem like, and when we have to Warcraft three, um, we didn't allow people to play ladder games at the fastest speeds. Hmm. So, you know, we made the decision there of, okay, we're not going to let you play it at the, the same speed as you could play StarCraft. And, was was yeah. that a high-level choice and just, like, we think RTSs are like this? Or was that did that have something to do with the way WarCraft 3 was designed? Um, a little bit of both, but I think, um, 
what really was going on there, it's what you're talking about. It's like, who, who do you want to be the best players at mm, this game? Right. You know, how important is actions per minute versus right. strategic thinking versus micro skill? Like, you, know, you kind of, I think in our minds, we want to have this idea of, okay, well, who do we want to be the best players at this game and, and what skills do they bring to bear? And I think where you notch that game speed has a really big effect on that. Right. Okay. Um, one other, so one of the other examples you brought up, I was thinking about, which is the idea of the slow death when someone towers up on you. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also like the creativity of that. Um, but I also feel like with competitive games, it's important that as soon as it's clear that the game is going to end badly, you let the game end as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's something I would be concerned with about that strategy. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that in general, that I don't really like games that have like the really slow loss or win conditions, but I just think that's an abnormal strategy you just live with because yeah. what you're really deciding there is, do you like that creative strategy in the possibility space and you just live with the fact that, yeah, it has this, this kind of downside. And I think so much of game design is, is making those calls mm -hmm. because, um, there's almost never a perfect design or a perfect solution. It's always pros and cons. Yeah. So, I have a, there's a design consultant I work with who has a favorite, his favorite, one of his common expressions is the, the cure is worse than the disease. Yeah. Right. Like it seems like that'd be one of those situations like, right. well, okay, you don't like it, but what are you going to do? Right. Are you going to prevent people from building towers X distance from their base? How is that going to work? That sounds like, yeah. Every time you add a restriction like that, that's a big, big overhead. Yeah. And is it better to say, okay, you can build anywhere. Um, and it sometimes it leads to a situation we're not happy with, but it's yeah. better than the alternative. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely in those, the sorts of decisions that gets tricky. Like, you know, I remember like Warcraft three was a really good example where, um, you know, we really wanted to have a game where the individual units mattered more because in Starcraft, um, you know, I could throw, like I could win games without even managing my troops because okay. I was so good at the economic part of the game and I was so fast at building my base. How would you, what would you do with your troops? You would build, would just, build a group and just literally send them off to a certain location and yeah. do an attack move to some place and that was it basically? Yeah, because I, I would, because one of the things, especially when you're playing at a fast game speed. Uh -huh. um, There's no like, way you can control them anyway, right? Well, the, the other reason is too, like... Um, the other thing that I think is really tough with RTS games to account for in a numerical sort of way is, you know, what, where your attention is at mm -hmm. and how are you utilizing your attention and what you're focusing on? Because everything's like an opportunity cost for your attention. Right. You know, are you going to focus on building a new base? Are you going to focus on your current base? Are you going to focus on building units? Are you going to focus on controlling your units? You know, you can't do everything. That's one of the things I think is really exciting about RTSs because right. you have to manage. Make that choice. Yeah, you, know. you have to make those choices. So one of the insights I had as a player was if I'm playing against other players, make them focus on combat and I'm going to focus on economy because what's going to happen as the game advances, I'm going to increase my economic advantage mm -hmm. over a period of minutes. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to get to a place where they just can't keep up with my troop production because they're spending all their time fighting off my Zerglings, right. which I'm not even managing. 
So I, I could give a shit because basically I'm just sapping their attention. Yeah, you're, yeah that's that is your core strategy. What yeah. they're gonna have to focus on for sure. Yeah, I mean, I many times playing Starcraft, Starcraft, I can tell that like I, you know, they, I got they they attacked me and I spent a lot of time trying to fend it off. But as soon as that, as soon as I beat them off, I know I've already lost the game because yeah. they've been doing something else during that last three or four minutes that I have not been doing, and right. I'm gonna pay for that. And there's just you know. <laughs> so when we got to Warcraft three. Um, and you know, we want to do some things that are different. Yeah. And well, hold on before before we jump too far forward. Sure. Uh, yeah, so you were talking about how you know you do believe that like the rush strategy is important. Yeah. You know, when this was you know clear when you're working on StarCraft, did you guys actually like did you use the term rush boom turtle at the time? Like, did you have that understanding? Was there like did you have you think you had that intuitive understanding, but you hadn't put it in words? Um, no, I, I think. There's things in there, like for example, turtling was definitely a term by then. Okay. Um, and I think and rush certainly was too. Um, I think booming we talk more about just teching, but same concept. So I mean, those were all definitely axes that that were discussed, but not really in a frameworky sort of way. It was just more. So you didn't think of them as in a framework of like you know, you know, a rush is going to be the. It wasn't like a rock paper. Rush is going to be the boom. No, no, boom is no. going to be the turtle, so on and so forth. No. Um, See that's interesting because like when I see StarCraft, I see like three races that like match those three yeah you know game styles right. So it seems like you I would have assumed that you would have started the process, started the design, you know, trying to hit those nope. you know those three play styles because it seems to match up so well. No, more of a got there sort of thing. Well, turtling's a funny one though because I'm not a big fan of defensive strategies. Like I, sure. that's another thing which um, you know kind of all my games. Um, I never make defense too strong. Yeah, you know because I, I players like to go for those sorts of strategies. Like I feel like you know, especially newer players always like to do the turtle strategies. But I, I think it's really important with strategy games that offense always wins because I, I think that makes the game more exciting and, and interesting. Sure. So I almost always you know do not make defenses very efficient. Right. Um, yeah. Um... I do feel like it's really hard to win defensively, and it does seem like, uh, yeah, I don't know why. It doesn't seem like a great thing to to encourage. So um, I, I'm not sure if the if that the the classical rush boom turtle framework is actually really even even true. Um, it's just that certainly there is an issue with the rush, right? Yeah. Um, and. Um, it's been always interesting for me to see how many people do their best to to make games or set up games where they're just trying to get away from you know it's, it's the the no rush yeah options um, yeah. or you know just like this uh, unspoken agreement that we're going to play a game where no one's going to rush yeah um, and um, what do you I mean what do you think about that um, I think those types of rules are fine socially like mm-hmm. I don't have a problem. Like, I think, you know, especially when you're just friends or you're playing friendly games, but I think if you're trying to craft a truly competitive game that you don't want to allow that stuff. Right. You know, so like I've I've never had a problem with maybe even adding options like that in custom games or something like that, but I would never hang a ladder off something like that. Right. Like, what did you think about, like, say, for instance, in like Age of Kings, like that's a game that very explicitly had some options that, you know, you ring the town bell and your guys go back in, they're protected and like something, you know, the town is going to be shooting, you know, air, you know, shooting a lot more arrows and like, 
it's going to be a lot harder to rush in that game. I mean, yeah, it is an aesthetic choice, but it like, is, and, and that's. I've never been a fan of, of those types of choices in RTSs. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people that love Age of Kings, and I think it's a really well-done game. But right. as far as, like, my design aesthetics go, I definitely like offensive games that force fast-paced aggression. Right. You know, like, that's just always been more where my design leanings go. And I, I think it just re, it results, I think, in a more interesting competitive space. You know, I think, you know, it attracts you know, a lot more players that are, you know, it's more interesting from an esports point of view. You know, I just think there's a lot of, that's where I see the values, but I feel like if you come at, come at things, and I think the age of empire series is a good example, or I feel like they're, they're trying to make a real time, you know, civilization or turn, you know, they're coming at it from the turn-based side where I feel right. like, um, the craft series, you know, Starcraft and Warcraft is more coming out of, we're making an action game with strategy. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I assume their argument is like, you know, by preventing the rush, we're, you know, we're extending the game. You know, mm-hmm. certainly an age game is going to average, you know, probably yeah. twice as long as a, yep. as a craft game. And uh, that means, like, you're going to get to the late, the late units. You're going to get yeah. to the late techs. Um, is that an issue for StarCraft? I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, you'll play a lot of games and yeah. you rarely will see certain types of units. And For sure. I mean, I think, and that's totally a criticism that, you know, some people have of the game and... You know, I think there's that's totally true. But I also think that um, goes back to that thing of if there's a meaningful skill difference between the two players, the game's going to end sooner. And that also, I think, is important because I feel like um, one of the things you'll see in Age of Kings or sometimes other RTS games that prevent those types of rush strategies is it even if I'm way better than the other player, the game isn't going to end very fast. Yeah. You know, and I'd rather, you know, get those games over with. Right, but but if the players are evenly matched, you will see those late game units. I mean, it totally happens in StarCraft. It just has to be a more evenly matched game. Right. So you're trying to get to the trying to get to get the inevitable finish line faster if you can. Yeah. Um, well, and the other thing is too. I'm I'm generally a fan of trying to make matches shorter. Like I, I just think yeah. that's better again for competitive games. You know, it's something that you know StarCraft had like 15 minute match times on average, and I think that was a huge strength versus its competitors. You know, I think, you know, Counter-Strike makes really smart decisions because they have really fast round times. You know, Hearthstone, you know, it's like, I think it's really good when competitive games can do that. I've always been actually surprised at um, the popularity of something like League of Legends, yeah. considering how long Those match matches go a long time. I'm yeah. kind of surprised at that as well. Uh, because there's definitely an upper limit. You know, once you get towards an hour, like, it's really kind of like, is this... There are going to be people who might just have to leave the game for yeah. real-life reasons, you know? And um, Well, I think that the other thing you get... Again, in the competitive scenes, is um, you know if you invest an hour into a match and you lose, it's more painful. Yeah, it's way more painful. Yeah. Than, let's say playing five matches and maybe I went two and three, but at least I got five games in, right? Yeah, yeah. If I play a bunch of ranked games in StarCraft Two or whatever, and you know I get rushed a few times, but then I win a couple games. Eighty percent of the time I spent was on those games that I I won, which yeah. means I was basically enjoying myself, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a kind of a, I have, I've, I mean, maybe this is fairly typical, but um, it seems like if if a game I play lasts longer than 15 minutes, I win 90% of the time. If it's less than 50, less than 15 minutes, I lose 100% of the time. <laughs> you know, like whatever, wherever the threshold is. But there's probably a lot of players who are in that kind of situation. Um, cool. Um, so was, was, was there internal... Um, 
arguments within Blizzard at the time about rushing? Like, were oh, there yeah, other? Sure. Oh no, it was. It was a. Um, you know, because especially back then, the, the team is really your primary feedback source. Right. And we did go and we finally did have a beta, but I would say the team was the loudest voice all the time, and they're all players of the game. And very commonly, people would always be coming into my office wanting me to kill this rush strategy or that rush strategy. And I don't even know, I can't even remember if I made any balanced decisions that nerfed that. I think the only time I remember nerfing a rush was there was a fairly deadly mutilisk rush that mm-hmm. was happening and that one I remember having to adjust the the build time on the spire is where I hit that one Good. but what I would do like typically what I would do to, to look at rushes is I would have whoever the fastest player was at doing the rush play against someone that I thought was pretty evenly balanced and I'd let the other player know what's coming sure like and is then, this can you fend this off or is it possible yeah. and you know it's coming Right. And in, and in, if you couldn't fend it off and you knew it was coming, then okay, then clearly yeah. there's there's an issue here that we have to address. Yeah, to me the biggest issue with a rush is kind of like if I okay, I can fend it off. If I assume they're going to rush, I can fend it off. But like am I at that point just making a random choice? Right? Like it well, happens so fast that like But reconnaissance is really strong in yeah. StarCraft. So I mean, you you have the capability to, tell. to know that they're rushing. And the thing is, um, because rushing you have to affect your build order so drastically that mm-hmm. it's really easy to see the other players doing a rush of some sort because they're going to build their buildings in a very abnormal Specific order. pattern, yeah. 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 So I always felt like the, you have the reconnaissance capability inside of the first 15 seconds of the game to see the other person's base, you know, because you can take any... Because that's what the top players will do anyway. So they'll take one of their very first units and they're going to go scout out all the start positions and see what the other yep. player's doing. Yep. And there's really no way to stop someone from doing that, that unless, point, unless yeah. you're doing an island map. Right. And that's actually where the Mutalisk rush was the worst, hmm. was on island maps because... Um, you can get to that flying unit really fast, and there wasn't a way to be able to scout out the other player to know they were doing it. Right. Yeah, that that's a map style that must really drastically change yeah. the balance. Do you are, are there certain maps where, to some extent, you guys raise your hands and like it's just it's going to be a different game at this point, and we're not going to worry as much about that, or were you trying to? Yeah, I mean the. I mean, the thing is, um, what really matters is what are the maps in the selection pool for, like, ladder games, uh-huh. right? So, and those are the ones that you want to make sure the game is really well balanced for. But for sure, there would be maps that just have, you know, odd layouts that might favor a race. Yeah. And that would totally would be the case. And, you know, we would affect things as much as we can, but at the same time, you know, the... You, you, I just don't think it's possible to balance perfectly balance all the races on every permutation of map type that's out there. I think you have to live with some of that. Right. I mean, certainly in Civ, you play an islands map. You're playing. You're not playing Civ as we conceive of it. Yeah. Right. Like you're you're deciding you want to play a certain type of game where yeah. you're not going to be challenged by the AI essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we just kind of are okay with that. Yeah. Um, you can be you can be a lot looser in Civ than yeah. <laughs> you can be in a game like yeah, Starcraft. Starcraft um, yeah, the island maps we really never made. We never really made those um, ladder maps. Like what what I think is a good StarCraft island map are ones where you know it's mostly landlocked, but there might be expansions that are on islands. And right. I think that works fine. But I think when all the players start on islands, then I, I don't think the game plays as well. Right. So why did you care so much about balance? Yeah, I mean that that's I guess the funny thing is that because no one was necessarily telling you this. Yeah, I mean it. It just ended up being something that um, 
because I played the game, I think at such a high level that mm-hmm. it just ended up being, I wanted to make the game better, right? Because I'm playing the game and I'm playing all the races and I'm playing against people all the time. So, you know, if I felt like, you know, I'm losing or winning because the game's not right, like there's units that are wrong or it's not balanced, then I, I wanted to fix it. I mean, I think that's really where it came down to. And it was, you know, because you felt like if there was one strategy you found out, then suddenly the game is over for you. In a no, way. it just didn't. Because again, I played all the races, so it mm. just didn't feel. Um, you know, the game is going to be less fun. Like, right. Because again, like I don't want to play a game where well, I'm clearly always going to play Terrans right. because they're they're the most powerful. Like I don't want to play a game like that. Right. You know. So so it just became something that I became very passionate about adjusting and fixing. Yeah. You know, and, and even. Um, you know, like another balance story, I mentioned the Overlord one, but in Brood War, there is a, definitely a funny moment because by the time we got to Brood War, um, they'd made me the lead designer on the expansion set. So now I really can do what I want to do. Right, right. And one of the things that, um, you know, we, we made more of the game data driven. You know, I can get into the spreadsheets now. And also um, I had the ability to design units which mm-hmm. was a balance capability that I, I didn't have in the original StarCraft because, you know, that's outside of the spreadsheet. The best way you can balance the races is add units that you want to each of the races to give them capabilities. So, so that was really powerful. But the thing that I, I, I remember I did one night because, you know, I was crunching like crazy hours on Brood War. And um, I remember going home at something like uh, five in the morning or something. And that, that night I'd worked with the lead programmer and I basically... Um, developed a whole different balance framework for how um, air units worked. Mm -hmm. So I took all the air units and I put them in a very different framework for um, what they were good at and each of the ones, which required me basically to um, make about, I don't know, a hundred data changes (laughs) because I I totally changed just how they all interacted as far as in the balance framework. And it meant I had to change just tons and tons of units. So, but I I was really careful about it and we tested Mm -hmm. it all and the rest. But the next morning, I remember when like uh, Alan Adham and Mike Morheim came in. They called me at my house because I was sleeping still. They're like, uh, "So we saw all these changes go in, and we need you to come in because we, we're worried that you just broke the game." <laughs> it's like, "Why did you make a hundred balance changes last night? That's like crazy." Wow. <laughs> so then I had to come in and I had to whiteboard up everything that I did and walk them through every single change. Why you did it, right? And then they're like, oh, well, that all sounds pretty reasonable, I guess. <laughs> so we kept it all in, and that ended up, you know, I think was a really good change for the game. Yeah, mm-hmm. because air units up until that point weren't really working very well with each other. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Right. So let's back up a little bit then. Like, so StarCraft came out, um, did very well, obviously. Um, and what were you, had you gotten hired before it came out by that point? Or? Yeah. Yeah, by the time it came out, they'd actually made me an official employee (laughs) right right and uh so you were one of the you know i guess there weren't a lot of designers but you were one yeah um and uh i assume you you guys started working on expansion pack immediately um yeah they were already starting work on brood war before starcraft launched because they were um working with an external developer so the idea was an external developer was going to do the expansion okay and is that what happened sort of um they definitely did a lot of the initial work, mm-hmm. but, but then we ended up taking, you know, a lot of it back also. So it ended up being kind of half and half, I think. Um, why did that, why did that happen? Uh, which part? Uh, why did you guys get, you know, take it over? 
Um, we took it over just because, um, you know, they just weren't going to be able to execute at the quality level I think we wanted. Right. You know, at the unit design or definitely not the campaign. So the campaign. Did you guys, was there a conception you guys were going to work, go start working on something completely different as well? Yeah, the idea was, and this is what Blizzard had done previous to that too, because the Warcraft 2 expansion was an external studio. Right. So that had worked for that. So the idea was, okay, we're going to have some external group do the expansion and then the team's going to roll on to the new games. Right. And that was the plan. And, and that was kind of how it worked for the first half of Brood War development. And yeah. Then, and then they, and then as I got more and more involved, because James Finney left the studio and then they, they had me take over the design on it. And once I got under the hood and was looking at things, you know, I just started recruiting people from the StarCraft team to start looking at stuff and recoding units. And then I took the campaign in and we just slowly started taking. But the, so the, the lead designer though was still uh, within Blizzard, even when it was done externally. Yeah. They, well, he was involved. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, so, so, so then you took over that position yeah. and then, yeah, and then ended up taking, you know, most of the game back internal. Right. So they still did stuff on the game, but you know, like all the campaign ended up being done internally. Like that was like, um, I mean, on Brood War, I kind of did everything. Um, mm-hmm. so, so what was your was, high level goal? Like, what is it that you wanted to do with Brood War? You know, I had a lot of different things I wanted to do. First of all, you know, I, I viewed it as the the chance to finally perfect the balance because right. there was, you know, even though I was very were people talking about StarCraft at this point in terms of balance? Like, yeah, they were. Um, definitely, um, people felt like it was good, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think it was great until Brood War. Right. And Brood War not only did um, you know because even though I was really you know driving the balance of StarCraft, I didn't win all the battles. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's. I didn't quite have all the credibility yet and some of the changes, even though I was able to push forward the overlord change, there's a variety of other changes that I wasn't able to make, you know, like I was really unhappy with how the Protoss air units worked in the original Starcraft, like carriers. And so there's a variety of stuff that, that I, I never got to change. Mm-hmm. And then once I became lead, then I was like, ah, oh, now, <laughs> this is now it. I can do anything I want to do with it. And I did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But then also I was a working level designer on that too because um, when James left, he left, he recruited like nine people out of Blizzard to go form his own studio. And I went, okay, well, let's go see all the work that they did on the campaign. And I found out they hadn't done any work. <laughs> so, so then I had to figure out what the campaign was. Yeah. And, um, and I was really passionate to try to figure out how to tell a good story in uh-huh. an RTS game through game mechanics. Okay. And that was something I really wanted to do with Brood War because okay. um, Starcraft had a cool story, mm-hmm. but I still felt like almost all the, all the maps, the game mechanics were very um, rudimentary. It's pretty much always build up a base and smash the other guy's base and get right. some talking heads. Yeah. And I really wanted to explore the space of, is there a way to tell stories through the actual mission mechanics and right. things that, you have to solve within the missions and different mission objectives. So that was something I was super passionate about in Brood War and I got them, you know, I had to have them do a bunch of work in the editor so that I could get more triggers and things that we could do. What's a, what's a standout mission that uh, you'd, you'd give us a good example of that? Um, there's probably a lot of different ones we did, but I mean like, um, like we would do stuff, like there was a Protoss mission where, or I'm sorry, it was a Zerg mission actually, where we, um, took away like your air units. Right. You know, and we came up with a you know a story reason for why your your air units were sick. 
but that also changed the space because you had to deal with the opponent having those units, but, but you, you didn't. Did. Right. right. So it's like playing around with those types of things or taking away this unit or making it so this entire map is about this other unit. So um, I think a, probably one of my favorite things I did, even though, um, was um, we had you do one mission and it had two different objectives. And what it was basically doing was setting up you know, it was a branch and the next mission, you're basically picking, does the opponent have battle cruisers or does he have ghosts? And then I theme that next mission really heavily towards the enemy force having one or the other. And you, you're basically picking your poison in the previous mission. Sure. And then what would happen, the startup for the next mission, let's say you took out the battle cruiser base and so now you don't have to face battle cruisers. Well, the very beginning of the next mission, I had like four ghosts appear and nuke like all your, your sub bases. So you like start the mission where you have like, I think four bases uh-huh. and you feel like, yeah, I'm doing really well. And then like 15 seconds in, all these nuclear bombs drop and destroy all your bases but one. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I thought that was always a really memorable mission and branch. And then on the other side, I did the same thing with the battle cruisers. And now battle cruisers just come in and just destroy you. Right. You know, so it's like really exploring that sort of stuff. And then Warcraft 3 was really, really where I got to push that design as far as I wanted. Sure. I couldn't do everything I wanted to do yet in Brew War. Right, right. Yeah, but War- I was actually also designing levels in Brewer. So I do kind of my lead designer job all day and kind of my project management stuff. And then once everyone, you know, most of the studio would go home, you know, eight ish, seven or eight, then I would basically now do all my level design assignments and work on my levels to like 3am or something. Was that necessary from a development point of view or were you just like this, you know, you were so passionate about Brood War that you just really wanted to get your fingers into everything as as much as you could. I mean, I think, most designers are probably like this, but I mean, for me, um, I just wanted to put more into the game than yep. we had developers. Yep. And if I want that stuff in there, then I'm just going to have to do it. You're going to have to do it. Yep. You know, so it's like, no one was telling me that I had to have that many missions in the campaign or was saying that I had to push all this crazy stuff. Right. It's just, I thought I was going to make the game better and I'm passionate about it and I'll work as long as I need to, to do it. Like no one was telling me you need to be here till five or 6am every day. You know, and that's the thing I think, even in the industry, you know, because crunch is such a bad term now. And, and I think obviously there's studios that, you know, maybe it's not healthy, but for me, like no one was making me do that. I mean, yeah. I, I wanted to do it so that, you know, I had a limited amount of time and I want to get as much stuff into this game as I could. Yeah. Well, there's definitely moments in game development where like, this is it. This is the stretch here of like six months or nine months or wherever, where if I, you know, this is when progress can be done. That's going to that's going to have huge payoffs, and you can you can not take advantage of that. I don't know how else to put it, right? You can either not take advantage of it, or you can take advantage of it, right? Yeah. Like it's not always true. There's been, I'm sure, you know, there's certainly been plenty of times for me where I could have worked harder, but it wouldn't have necessarily made much of a difference. Mm-hmm. And then there's other times where like you you get a very high return off of that. Yeah. So it's worthwhile. Um, yeah. Okay, so then, uh, so then Brood War came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Brood War is, you know, thought of very, very highly, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, was, it went very well. Was there stuff you, you think that you got wrong, though, balance-wise, or were you very happy with, with how it worked out? I'm pretty happy with it. I mean, you know, I, I don't... I mean, there's always things you can tweak and tune, but, yeah, it, you know, I, I, I feel like the Brood War balancing it up in a really good spot. 
I think um, I think one of the things that's really tricky when you discuss balance is what what are your goals? What does balance even mean? Sure. You know, because I think um, you know a lot of people want it to be where if I go to a tournament, one third of the players yeah. are Karen, one third's Protoss, one third Zerg, which I think is nice, but I don't know if that's really the right goal. Yeah. You know, I think for me the right goal was, you know, if you are looking at world class players. Can every race win a tournament? But yeah. I don't necessarily think it has to be equal representation. Yeah. And I totally think Brew War ended up in that place. I was a little worried about the Terrans early on because it, it did feel like they, you know, you weren't really seeing those players until like this guy Slayer Boxer came along that became just the Terran master and he started just demolishing people at tournaments with Terrans. So I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Did he pursue a strategy that you were, that was, you had had thought of or was it a real surprise? Uh, it was, it was a good example of like the Zillius thing again, like he um, pioneered strategies around using uh, vultures, which we had um, kind of felt like we're not that powerful of a unit yeah, because they were pretty weak, but he found a way to utilize spider mines in a really unique way, mm-hmm. you know, almost, almost like a fast moving reaver. So, mm-hmm. so it was really, so that was like a really good example. Yeah. You, um, do you feel like you had a technique for designing things that could su- could surprise you after release, if that's the right way to put it? Um, like, uh, you know, you talk about people coming up with creative strategies that suddenly then change the balance of the game, yeah. and now a race is, is plausible that's not, pl- you know, that there is a competitive that wasn't competitive before. Um, and, like, is that fortunate or is there a way to design so that those type of things happen? Um, I don't know if there's a, Oh, I mean, there is, but I don't know the really the right way to, I guess, verbalize it, but it is something I would often think about, you know, when design units or classes in world of Warcraft, where you try to design mechanics that can be utilized in multiple ways. You mm-hmm. know, like I, I really, like trying to come up with simple mechanics that, you know, people can be creative with and do different things with. Like, I guess example is StarCraft II, we had this philosophy around units that, um, because, actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to back up for just one second. So, so with Warcraft three, one of the things we did was we put a lot of spells on units, a lot of special abilities, and that was important to the design philosophy of that game. Right. But when we got to StarCraft II, what happened was um, the team inherently was still in that design philosophy where they're trying to design a lot of special abilities on all the StarCraft II units. And we had to like stop ourselves and come up with this term we called movers and shooters. Okay. Where we felt like, okay, it's really important for most of the StarCraft units to basically just move and shoot. Like you don't have to punch a bunch of buttons. So, you know, they're autonomous and they're simple and you understand what they are, but hopefully they have a lot of flexibility. Right. And I think that's a good example of if you're designing a lot of units that kind of are in this mover and shooter category, then that's conducive to people trying to figure out how to play around with them in interesting ways. Okay. Cool. Um, okay. So probably now it's time to move on to, I guess, is Warcraft three what happened next or was there other stuff worth talking about? I mean, you know, from a design point of view, that was my next game. I right. mean, I was involved with Diablo 2 a little bit, but, you know, more at a kind of a strike team sort of level again, since I was up at Blizzard North. But Warcraft 3 is the next game that I was the lead on. Do you have thoughts about Diablo? That um, I mean, you know, you guys were kind of the, you know, there was that north-south split within Blizzard. Mm-hmm. Blizzard. 
Um, so I've never been clear how involved you were with Diablo. I mean, obviously you were somewhat. Yeah. Um, like what? Um, well, what what role did you play? Like, well, Diablo two. Um, you know, like one of the things I think was really a strength of Blizzard, especially back then. I think the studio might be a little bit too big now, but but it really was. Um, everyone would play the games and, uh-huh. and that was how we would iterate and polish the games is that we're all a bunch of game players when we play it. So with Diablo two, once it was kind of at that playable alpha state, we were all playing it down in Irvine and Alan was collating all the feedback, just like he did for Starcraft. And, you know, we'd sit down and we'd talk about it like at a strike team level and he would deliver all that feedback to like Dave Brevik or the guys up at Blizzard North and changes would happen. So it was, it was almost like, you know, that early StarCraft phase where I was playing the game and giving qualitative feedback. Yeah. So that was that was most of my role on D2. Um, but I had a really good relationship, though, with Dave and those guys. Like, uh-huh. they, they respected the work I had on Brood War. So, yeah. so I would definitely go up there sometimes and give them feedback and argue with them about stuff. And Was there a specific part of that game that you focused on, like, that, that you can, you know, you can sort of point to, like, this was the thing that, you know, I, I you know, thought maybe we should try something a little different with and... Uh, I mean, it was probably a whole bunch of incremental stuff. Like, yeah. I don't think it was anything. I mean, you know, the DNA of the game was all there. I mean, I would yeah. probably say, like, you know, I I used to um, try to work with them a lot, like on the the quests, because there really wasn't a lot of quest in the game yet. And you know, they didn't feel very rewarding. They didn't. So, you know, really trying to get more of that into the game, which you know, they ended up. I think each act has like six quests and. You know, so that was something I was pretty involved with, but but again, it was really you know it's a lot of incremental stuff. There wasn't like oh here was the thing I really drove into the game. Yeah, I mean there was certainly that story on Diablo one where where you know they want to do a turn based um, game. And oh really? Alan, I didn't know that. Yeah, no. Originally, the game that Condor Studios was doing was a, a turn based. kind Was of this like, before your time or yeah, when before you were... my time? Okay, but um, you know it's a famous story. I mean, it's actually out in the news. But but right. Alan was like, "Oh, you should do it real time." Right. And they were not convinced. But then um, Dave ended up just coding it one night, and then they played it. They're like, "Oh yeah, it needs to be real so time." <laughs> it was working in turn based, and yeah, then they yeah. switched to real it was time. Turn based, yeah. It's a turn based. Yeah. Uh, you know that the opposite was true for Civ One, right? Hmm. That it was Civ, Sid originally prototyped Civ as a real time game. Oh, really? Because he was inspired by SimCity, right? Which is real time, and Rare Tycoon was real time. So yeah. that was kind of what he was thinking. And you know, the issue with Civ, of course, is you're cramming so much stuff into the game. Yeah. You know, like you're you're pouring a lot more stuff into that bucket, right? Yeah. And like. Um, it was just too much for people to handle. Yeah. So like, uh, I don't, I don't know if he thought of it, who suggested it, but you know, he switched it to turn base and suddenly you could breathe and like, you know, there was, there That's was space for it. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to think of yeah, turn base versus real time. It's one of those classic, yeah. you know, design decisions that, um, you know, it's very much fitting with, with, I mean, to me, I usually think of it in terms of how much stuff is in your game. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like, if you have, if you get past a certain threshold, um, you want to think about making the turn based, um, just to, to let people be able to handle it. But there's lots of other reasons to make stuff real time and yeah. lots of other reasons to make stuff turn based as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you could probably talk, we could probably both talk about that for an hour. But. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Okay, cool. Is, is Diablo something that you think, like if you had happened to have uh, grown up in the Bay Area instead of LA that you would have ended up yeah, working oh, I, I love, on Diablo? I, mean, I love the Diablo series. Like uh, the first Diablo came out when I was at Point of View. Yeah. And I 
played it like crazy. We used to play it because we played it on land and we used to play it all the time. So yeah, I love the Diablo series for sure. Right. But does it, um, I mean, Diablo isn't so much of a competitive game, but like, is that, um, but there, there is enough other stuff there that actually, you know, now, now you mentioned probably one of the biggest things that I went to war with Blizzard North over on Diablo two was how much PVP was in the game. Okay. Like that was something that we used to really argue about because, um, you know, they've always been a fan of it being a very brutal PvP sort of game that, yeah. that you could just be playing, and at any moment, some player can jump into your game and, and just kill you. And I was never really a big fan of that. Um, so that was definitely something we'd go back and forth, especially in the battle net options. Like, can you close your game? Can people jump into your game? You know, those types of things. And they they were always very wanting to do the hardcore stuff. You know, but you know that was uh, and and I like. Like, I, I don't have a problem with PvP games. It's funny, because, like, I used to play a ton of Ultima Online. That game was sure, brutal. Yeah, brutal. <laughs> brutal. Um, but I just never really felt like Diablo PvP was really that fun. Sure. So that was always my issue. Yeah, I've never I've never done Diablo PvP. Yeah. And I never really... It seemed like a... To me, it seemed like an odd fit. Like, it seemed like Diablo is about progression, you know, and uh, progression and loot, right? But, uh, well, what they what they always had was the philosophy that it makes the game more fun. That there's tension there. Yeah. I'm not sure. You know, it feels like a dangerous world, and that was uh-huh. the way of accomplishing it. And I think that's definitely what happens with WoW when you're on a PvP realm. Yeah. It does add a lot. You know, you can't. You know, you have to be paying more attention. And I think some people like that, and some people don't. Yeah. But, you know, to the people that enjoy that, it adds a lot. Yeah. But my problem was that. I don't have a problem with those players. What I had a problem with is, well, what about all the players that don't want that don't experience? Want that, yeah. you know, I don't even remember. So how did, they, how did they segregate people in Diablo? Like if you went online, you were PvP? Um, no, you... Well, what would happen is, um, if I remember right, you would be notified. Mm-hmm. And I think... I'm trying to remember now. God, it's been so long. But yeah... Someone couldn't just randomly kill you like they could in Diablo 1. Like, there was... Yeah, I can't remember exactly how it worked off the top of my head. But there were limitations and restrictions and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I don't think either one of us ended up completely (laughs) happy. I think we ended up in a compromise space that probably didn't really serve either side, but... Yeah. That's that's another interesting design question of, like, is it it good to compromise, or is it better at some point to, like... Adhere strictly to like, well, we're gonna we're gonna make this one demographic happy. And there's a lot of there's a lot of those types of decisions in World of Warcraft. Right. Because World of Warcraft, um, I almost view the game as a as a collection of sub games, Mm -hmm. and those different areas, you know, we would definitely design for a demographic of WoW, and we're gonna make them happy. And we know that there's this other group that isn't gonna be happy with those decisions, but this part of the game is not for them. We're going to try to segregate it so it's not an issue. We don't have to compromise. Yeah, like dungeons were a really good example of that because, um, you know, we never allowed people to um, to have single-player dungeons, even though it was hugely requested. Sure. Like people all the time would be like, well, I just want to experience the story. The content's so cool. It's like, well, yeah, but if that's also going to water down the experience. I mean, it is a group you know, experience where everyone has to have roles and it's a little more hardcore. And that's who it's for. And we have to design design it this way to make that group really happy. Right, right, right. Cool. Well, let's let's jump into Warcraft Three then. Okay. Um, so, uh, I assume you were kind of the first guy 
on the boat there. Um, and pretty uh, early on, like um, not not literally ground zero because I was working on Brood War and they okay. already started it. Oh, okay. And Warcraft three was not originally Warcraft three. It was um, kind of as codenamed Warcraft Legends was the idea. That's not the adventure game, is it? No, no, no. Okay. That was Warcraft Adventures. Okay. Yeah. Um, All right. <laughs> Appropriate title, I guess. And it was kind of funny because this area, era of Blizzard, uh, the, uh, the, so out of the StarCraft team spawned two separate teams. And okay. Both those teams um, initially felt like they didn't need producers and designers anymore to make games. <laughs> so it's going to be the programmers and the artists are going to go make these other two games. And Why do you think they felt that way? Um, I, you know, <laughs> I can't exactly defend it, but, um, I know that Mike O'Brien, he used to have this term for, uh, designers and producers called snappers, mm. which means that those are the people that snap their fingers and make other people do actual work. Sure. So, yeah. so there was kind of a bit of that going on and I definitely don't think game design was yet respected as an actual discipline sure. in Blizzard. Um, you know, I'd gained some credibility for sure, but still, it wasn't really viewed as that important of a discipline yet. So, is this something? Is this something that you remember a lot from this period? The feeling like you had to fight for your position. Um, I guess it, it wasn't so much like that. It was, but it was definitely fighting for credibility for sure. Right. But I just always felt like that was the case from the moment I stepped into Blizzard. But right. It wasn't like fighting for my job. It wasn't like that. It was more, I want to prove to all my peers that I was valuable to the team. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, my bosses, they, they knew my value. But I definitely felt like I want to earn credibility for myself and that game design should be a thing at Blizzard. Were there other people like you at Blizzard? Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, there was, you know, there's a couple of level designers, but... Again, during that era, there wasn't really any other game designers yet. Right. Um, when I started Brood War, um, I had like a technical game designer that he he was a programmer and you know wasn't doing as well over there. So I kind of brought him into the design group, and he ended up being really valuable. And I had a level designer. And then after Brood War, I had this idea to um, I wanted to do. Um, a map of the week for the, the brood war community. Mm. So I actually brought up three guys out of um, QA and community support to be just map designers for ongoing community engagement. So I brought those guys in and then they eventually turned into game designers. So that was almost the beginning of the game design department was just that small crew. Right. But I was really the only person that was really driving any of that or was really a game designer outside of Alan. Right. Cause that was again, the thing like Alan, because he'd been such a force, but no one really thought of him as game designer. I mean, he's yeah. Alan. He's the he's CEO. Just, he he's, is what he is. Yeah. 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 So, so I was really the only person that was kind of a senior game designer. I mean, there was James, but James left. So. Right. So for Warcraft three, how did you get? How are you? How did you become lead designer? So um, after Brood War launched, I mean, I had a really good relationship with uh, Mike O'Brien, who was mm -hmm. the project lead. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been on the StarCraft Strike team. So it just kind of na was natural that I go onto that team and start doing design work on it. And even though 
Mo was the one that had the term snapper. I, again, I, I had a really good relationship with, yeah. with him, and I, and I and he respected what I was doing. So I, I came over kind of in that role then. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be a little bit of that tension yeah. in every team. Yeah. But that's just, you know, an old story. But, yeah, the game we were trying to make, though, was not Warcraft 3 at first. So, like, Mo was really passionate about not doing a traditional RTS. Like, yeah. he wanted to do a strategy game. Yep. But he didn't really have a vision for what it was other than he wanted to be innovative and different. Yep. Which... I, you know, looking back on it now, I think that's a very flawed way to try to make a game. Sure. Okay. You know, by defining what, what it's not, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, just I, I don't mind that being aspirational, but I don't think you can have a bunch of developers making something that they don't know what they're making. Yeah. You know, which is kind of what we were doing. Yeah. Um, and then we got pretty far in, like, I don't know, at least a year in where we finally did the okay, let's really look at where we're at and where we want to take this game. And, and where were you at at that point? Like, what was it? Um, it, it had a different perspective. Like, do you know they get the shiny game Sacrifice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was probably more in that vein. Like, Were you more, controlling a single character? Uh, you weren't controlling a single character, but it was a small group. It was okay. a little more tactical. Uh-huh. And you didn't, um, you didn't build a base. Okay. You know, so that's what I mean. And it had more of that, that camera angle. It wasn't isometric. Yeah. You know, it was more of a, you know, over-the-shoulder sort of third-person controller group kind of So you were, you were definitely out into the unknown yeah. then at that point. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, obviously if we just experimented in that space for three to six months, I think it's fine. But, I mean, we were trying to make a game that we didn't really know what we were making. Yeah. You, you hadn't found that kernel that, like, okay, yeah. we've proven this works. We can put a full team on this. And the thing that, that I always found was a struggle with that and I think Sacrifice totally has this issue is it's really hard to have a game where you have a sense of strategy and the map when you're down that immersed in, into the world itself because you know because you're fighting strategy versus tactics yep. like what is this game mm-hmm. and it never felt very strategic yep um, so we kind of did a hard stop and really looked where we're at and then we finally, you know what, Let, let's really make this thing Warcraft 3. And that's really what the team had wanted to make all along anyways. Because, okay. you know, everyone liked adding all the RPG elements. They liked a lot of the, the things we we're trying to do where units mattered more. Um, but then we put in base construction, you know, put in a more, you know, economy, pulled the camera back out into isometric and we started making that game. Right. So, okay. And was the heroes concept there from yeah, the, the heroes were always there. I mean, that's it was called Warcraft Legends. Right. So the hero thing was always there. Um, I mean, it changed. You know, it evolved quite a bit, especially once we made that big decision to really truly making it Warcraft three now. Yeah. So what um, what did you have to what did you have to do differently once you started making an RTS that had more traditional RTS elements, but were built you know, but were where the heroes were so important. Had Age of Myth come out at that point? Mm, I don't think so. No. So you guys were you guys were before that, or I guess concurrent yeah. maybe. Um, yeah. No, so I'm trying to think of any other this. sort of traditional RTS that did something like that. There was um, a, I'm trying to remember like there was another game that came out I think right before us, but we had obviously already been well well down the path. But right. it's like Battle Cry or something like that. It was a smaller game. The but, Warlords. Yeah, something else. But yeah. th- there's a couple other games that are kind of playing around this space, yeah. but different. Okay. So what yeah, Warlords the turn based game was awesome. Is that the one you were talking about? Oh, right. I think yeah, but that was that was a great game, and that was totally a reference game for us, for sure. 
you know, it's like, oh, we kind of want to do the real-time version of this, or Heroes of Might and Magic was another mm-hmm. big reference yep. for us. But those are turn-based games where we're like, oh, let's take some of those concepts and do a real-time strategy game with those concepts. Right. So what did you discover that was different once you once once Heroes became so important to the mix? The really tricky problems, I think, were around um, how to balance um, economy and unit production with keeping the heroes powerful and important. Because I think, um, and this is one of the things we definitely saw in Starcraft through the campaign, because the campaign, you know, you play heroes, yeah. but, um, but I mean, how do you balance the power of a hero? Do you balance the power of a hero for an engagement with 10 units or with a hundred units? Because, you know, you can have both in Starcraft and what would always end up happening in Starcraft missions is the hero would eventually just become irrelevant and you just parked him in the back of your base. Yeah. You still wanted to die. Right. right. Yeah. So, so those were the, the big problem spaces was making the heroes powerful, um, making you want to actually have them in an engagement mm-hmm. and not letting them become obsolete, you know, once you get your economy up and running. I suppose it was important that fictionally you were in a space now where it made sense that heroes could die and come back, right? Yeah. Well, the funny thing was with that, like that was actually very controversial on the team. Really? Like, that was one of the, the first things I really pushed into the design because one of the, the first things I was thinking about is, okay, it's it's not enough you have heroes. I mean, you, I wanted heroes to be the center of every single yeah. combat and engagement because that's kind of the fantasy, right? Like they're in the front of the battle duking it out. And, you know, if you had to rebuild you know, a new hero from scratch every time that one died, then you're going to not want to risk them in combat. It's going to be more like chess where you don't want to bring your queen out until the late game yeah. or something. Right. And that's not what I wanted to build. So, you know, we came up with the concept of altars, which mm-hmm. now in retrospect, you know, obvious decision, but actually back then it, it was not. And there's a lot of people on the team that felt like it was stupid. It doesn't make sense. But then when we started playing it, you know, it won everybody over. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that's, there's a lot to be said about you know how consequence works in in games, and for sure you can have. Yeah, to me, I think it's like a continuum because you can have so much consequence to an event that it kind of cuts off a whole bunch of gameplay. Yeah, right. Um, you the heroes will not be important if people are terrified of losing their heroes, right? And um, like I think XCOM sometimes gets gets into this problem in that if you're playing it you know, in sort of classic Iron Man mode, you're so concerned about losing your guys that it essentially forces you to adopt a really conservative strategy. Yeah. In a high level, you have to decide, like, is this is this how we want players playing the game? Right. Right. And you, they are playing that game because of that decision you made to have heavy consequence. Right. Um, and so is that... That's fine if that if you want people to to If you want a conservative play style to be the design aesthetic of the game. But, right. like... You know, I don't know. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> all things being equal, that's often not a very fun experience. Yeah, I know, and, and it's totally a choice, like you said. But you know, it does make you play a certain way. Like Ultima Online has that problem too, right? Like you, yep. you really have to be careful about your character because you can lose everything. So, do you really want to go into a dungeon and try to take on a dragon, knowing you're going to die, and all these people around you are going to vulture up your corpse? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so yeah. So was that one of those moments where it felt like there was? suddenly a quantum leap in like how the game worked. Like once, Yeah, that was definitely that a big, a big one because that, that suddenly made the heroes, you know, now they really are the center of engagement. So that was a big point where the game started feeling more like it was supposed to. And the other one was, um, were people using them defensively before that or? I guess yeah. I mean, you just wouldn't necessarily want to bring them out in yeah. combat all the time. Like you would use them to, you know, kill creeps or whatnot. But, yeah. You know, you're really careful when you fight, fought other players. 
Um, then the other big one was probably when we put um, upkeep into the game. Okay. Which was, again, one of these really tricky problems for us to try to make the hero concept work. Because when upkeep wasn't in there, then um, you know, all you really had to control the players was um, population cap. Yeah. But what would happen, what was always happening in playtests, is um, people would get up to their pop cap, yep. you know, and they'd have a big army. And then um, they would use, and then they would just stockpile all the gold. They'd have a ton of gold. And then what would happen is we'd get end up in a combat with each other. And if if I didn't, if it ended up not resolving the war, you know, that both of us could basically instantly rebuild our arm, army. There was just no real economic tension. Right. Um, so, you know, we tried a lot of different ideas, but then upkeep ended up being the one that again. Very, very unpopular on yeah. the team. Um, but it was funny because um, I used I, I always thought of it as like... Because a, people felt like they were they were being punished for succeeding, yeah. sort of? Like, yeah. Well, and, and I didn't help myself. Like, this is also one of the phases of my design career that I, I started realizing the importance of salesmanship with ideas mm. because, you know, I, I would often just talk and design shorthand and I just viewed it as a unit tax, yep. you know, so it's, but that basically shot the idea in the head with anyone I pitched it to because <laughs> yep. people are so adverse to taxes. Yep. So when I finally came up with the name of upkeep and I kind of pitched it a little bit different, but it was the exact same concept. I started getting people one over and then I got it implemented into the game and slowly again, people, it, it wasn't the same moment as it was with um, hero resurrection. Yeah. It was much more of a, well, it still feels a little icky, but I understand why it's in there, and it does make the game. Seems like more the fun. game is just working better now. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in what you think about it in retrospect because it kind of reminds me a little bit of the maintenance system in Civ Four, in that you have this gameplay problem, and you come up with a very frankly gamey yeah. solution for it, right? Where you have this kind of very, uh, you know, a little heavy-handed thing where it's like, okay, you're in these three different modes. Is it three, right? Low, medium, high? Yeah. Is that it? Yep, yep. If, you know, if these three different modes are going to have these effects, and this is going to be, you know, I can show you how that's going to affect, you know, the gameplay, and it's going to solve our problem, but, like, is it is it the best way to solve the problem, yeah. right? Whereas, similarly, like, with maintenance, the classic problem in Civ is, like, what's stopping people from just building settler, 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 you know, like yeah. building more cities seems to always be the solution. Um, and so, you know, I came up with, with maintenance as a way of like, you know, that you, you can, you can overdo it. If you have a ton of tiny cities, it's going to drive your empire yeah. into the red. Um, so it solves the problem, but it's not necessarily a game system that in and of itself is fun. Yeah. Right. Like, in retrospect, you feel like there was another way, or was that the only way to do it? Um, I, I mean, I agree with everything you just said, and it's always been one of those systems that I had always hoped there was kind of a different system out there, yeah. but I, I still don't really know what it would be. You yeah. know, I think um, to accomplish the the gameplay goals of how we wanted that game to play and to make especially heroes the, the centerpiece of each of the battles. Yeah. It was still the best thing I can think of to, to put in there. Yeah. Like sometimes, you know, I don't know it's sometimes you need these little band-aids yeah. to like pull the whole system together. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, it's tough. It's hard to look back at something and not, you know, you'll never, you'll never get a chance to like iterate how, what's the right way to put this. Um, you know, you want each part of your game to feel like, 
it's awesome on its own, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that's you know, <laughs> that's yeah. I mean, sometimes you need it. Like another, I mean, another example of a system that um, you know is never going to be a player. You know, that doesn't pass the fun test. Right. But I think from a system design point of view, was really necessary for the game, and that's uh, durability in World of Warcraft. Mm, sure. Yeah. You know, as a good, and I put that in the eleventh hour. Really. That went in like two weeks before beta was over. Wow. And um, it must have been popular no one, choice. <laughs> yeah. No one. I was not anyone on the team's favorite person. Like they, they were pretty irate with me. Even the team, I would think. Wait, was that? Did you say that was before it went out to the players? No, it was in beta. It was in beta. So I, I was thinking you were going to say yeah, you both. were. You well, were the players. The players must have been extremely unhappy. Yeah, yeah, but even yeah. within the team, they didn't understand that it was like yeah, like a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, people were not like yeah. <laughs> I mean, I assume people were just like they had they were had more gold than they would know what to do with. Like essentially, it was that the yeah, problem that, or. The basic thing, it was definitely put in for economy balance reasons. Right. You know, the thing was, um, we really didn't have a lot of high-end money sinks in the game. And, you know, and again, like I, I learned my lesson, so I didn't pitch it as tax. But mm-hmm. that's literally what it was. Durability, the way, and the way I balanced it and tuned it was it's going to tax the players that have the best gear. Because, you know, the, the amount that it costs to uh, repair items... You know, if you have epic items, it costs more than it does if you just have, you know, rare items. So the thinking was, well, I can have all these raiders that are going to be in the top end dungeons, and those mm-hmm. are the people that I want to take all their money from. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's definitely not one of those systems that you, you ever pitch. And, feels great. Right? It but, feels great, but it was super important for the game. Yeah. Super important for the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So... Another big, and we've, we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but another big aspect that stands out for people with Warcraft 3 was, was the story. It's definitely one of the few RTSs that people point to as having like, you know, a compelling story that worked well with the, uh, the, the campaign and the, the various, the various uh, levels that you went through. Mm-hmm. Um, so I assume that was a big part of you with, yeah. with you from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, how did that, how did you build that? Um, yeah, it's definitely really passionate about trying to take what we did in Brood War and, and really push it to a whole another level. And I, I really, um, what I've always wanted to do with the RTS levels is, and, and I didn't do this at the time because I, I think we leaned too much on cutscenes for Warcraft three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that was another lesson, which I'll, you know, I, I wouldn't repeat and I don't think Starcraft really did as much, but back then we're like, Oh, we're going to put all this stuff into the editor and we're going to do in-game movies with characters doing acting and all that sort of stuff, which, which we did, but I don't know if the quality was awesome and all those things. I don't know if the right way to make cutscenes is have a bunch of level designers try to be Steven Spielberg, but <laughs> right. that's what we did. <laughs> and I think there's some good and bad things to it. But the thing that, that I was really passionate about was how much of the story can you just get through the game mechanics and the mission? Right. You know, and kind of putting in these different quest objectives and, and really, um, you know, kind of blending an RPG story, but with RTS mission mechanics and really trying to make it so that like almost every mission is really unique and different. Like right. it never feels like, okay, 
I just got one more new unit and now I'm just going to build up my base in the same way I did the last three missions. And then I'm just going to smash a different person's base. And it just, the mission looks like a different level, but it plays identically to the last, you know, cause that's why I really felt like RTS campaigns work, Yeah. you know, and I, I really wanted each one of these missions to have like a central gimmick that hung off whatever the story was. And, right. and I'd go back and forth with uh, Chris Metzen all the time because he He'd have um, story beats that he really wanted to hit, and then I'd have mission mechanics that I wanted to turn into story things, and we'd go back and forth. So, like, he'd come up with some story beat that I'm just like, I can't turn that into an RTS mechanic. But I'd, I'd figure it out. Like, I'd somehow figure out some way to do it. Um, but, and then vice versa, I'd come up with some gaming mechanic I want to do. He's like, I'm not going to, I can't turn that into a story thing. But, but we'd work back and forth and always come up with ways of doing it all. Right, right, right. You know, um, like a really good example was he had this, uh, and frozen throat, I think it was, or wait, no, 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 it was actually, it wasn't rain chaos. So, uh, actually I can't remember now. It was one of them, but, um, he really had the story beat where he wanted, um, you know, for the night elf story, like there's this character, you know, character, uh, Tyranda mm-hmm. and kind of her love Malfurion. And then Malfurion's brother is Illidan, who also kind of has a thing for Tyranda. And he wanted to have some sort of mission around that. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, a love triangle. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah. How do I turn that into a mission? Yeah. yeah. But, it, and it was really challenging. And I kept on saying, I, I can't do a romance thing <laughs> in an army game. Right. Yeah. But he, he really was passionate about it. So I finally came up with this way of doing it where I put Tyranda in the middle. Mm-hmm. And she is being surrounded by enemies and Malfurion's on one side of the base and Illidan's on the other side by himself. And they're both trying to get to the center to save her. Right. You know, so that was kind of how I cracked that idea, but it, <laughs> it was very maddening at the time. I'm like, how am I going to turn this into a mission? But that's, yeah. that's what was fun. It was, we'd always try to, okay, how do we turn this story idea into an actual mission? So it's not just a bunch of talking heads telling you what's right. happening, but the mission itself is actually the story. Yeah. Now, with its hero's focus, Warcraft 3 seems to sort of ideally suited to, like, you know, have a, yeah. a, have a narrative. Was that, is that something you were excited about from the very beginning? Like, was that part of the mm-hmm. reason why you wanted heroes? I mean, uh, I guess... Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the reasons. I mean, we just wanted to do the RPG thing anyways. A lot of those yep. decisions kind of just came, came together. together. Yeah. yeah. But certainly... Um, Starcraft had a cool story to it. So we really want, you know, we were always passionate about doing really cool stories with the campaign. Right. I just really wanted to do more of it through the mission, you know, and, and try to, you know, and we also did cutscenes, but like as, as I've evolved and, you know, going into even Starcraft was okay. Well, as much as possible, can we just not have cutscenes and how much of this can, or at least not in the mission, yeah. you know, like the mission just have really cool game mechanics that tell the story themselves. Right. Now, um, personally as a player, um, you know, even though like, you know, Warcraft three, you know, did a very good job with it. Like I'm traditionally not very interested in the scripted campaigns that, Mm -hmm. you know, come with, come with RTS games. Um, I've always wanted something that's, you know, something that's more of a a dynamic campaign, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that feels like, um, you know, it's a game that has its own sets of of rules as well. Um, and frankly, there aren't a lot of good examples of that. Um, Mm -hmm. is that, um, is that something that you've thought about or are you, you very happy with the, the sort of traditional blizzard way of doing campaigns? I think there's obviously different ways of doing them. Yeah. But, um, 
you know, I think the way that we did them accomplished our design goals, right? You know, I, like the thing I've always wanted to, that I would have enjoyed trying to figure out, and I think in some ways exercised this in World of Warcraft, but I always wanted to explore more um, co-op type stuff in RTS campaigns because I okay. feel like that's a huge underserved area of, yep. of that sort of stuff. But I mean, it, it's very hard to do, yep. you know, but... But I would like if I was making another RTS game, like that's probably what I would I would try to crack next is how do we do an RTS campaign that's co-op focused? Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We haven't brought up co-op yet, but um, I probably should mention talk about that a little bit because uh, for me, my first experience with StarCraft was almost entirely like me and two friends playing just mm-hmm. co-op against the computer over and over again, just seeing how high we could raise the difficulty level and yeah. you know whether we could still pull it off. Is that something you were thinking about at the time? Like. Um, was that like a specific game mode or was it simply like that was possible and people, so people took advantage of it? I I think it was more that it was possible and it was really weird too, because, um, it became very popular in the community. You know, we called them comp stomps, you know, and, and like, it was always a fun thing to play. Right. But we didn't expect it to be quite that popular. Right. That's for sure. And so was, you didn't really spend a lot of design time thinking about a way to make that better, did you? Not, not until later. I think StarCraft Two we started talking about it a lot more. So but even through, even for Warcraft Three, you still weren't really thinking about it all that much. Yeah, I mean, not to design for it specifically. No. Yeah. I mean, again, we we always were big fans of allowing a lot of options and custom maps and right. map editor. So you know, we we knew the community was going to take the game in different directions and we were fans of that, but we weren't necessarily yet designing for that specific type of play experience. Right. Okay. All right. So now maybe looking back at, you know, now we're getting to the end of, of Warcraft three. Is there something you look back on that game that you kind of wish you had done differently? Um, I, I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of things in Warcraft three that, that always didn't quite get where I would want it to be there. You know, it's like, it always felt a little awkward with um, how we balanced the leveling of heroes and, and just how clumpy um, the combats were like that. And I don't know how to solve it again, but um, can you be more specific about what the problem is? What I mean is, um, so the thing that that I think is really cool in like Starcraft Uh is, you know, you can have multiple engagements all over the map. Um, you know, you can have like two units out of exploring over here. You can have a small skirmish fight happening here and, a, and defending something back in your base. And Warcraft 3 doesn't really have that. It had, you know, you basically just always travel around with a big stack. Uh-huh. You, know, you always had your big army. It's in that way, it very much was like Heroes of Might and Magic. Right. Um, you know, and I, I just wish that there is a way to not have that be the way you always have to play the game. But again, it, you think that's inherent to like having the heroes because yeah, I don't know. It might be like, why would you have your guys not with your hero? I guess basically. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing because heroes, it ends up being the, the backside of some of our design goals. You know, we want heroes to be in every battle. We want them to be powerful and meaningful, but then that necessitates then, well, you're almost stupid to have units without a hero now. Yeah. What was the the other thing about it too is, it also is a function of um, the the third resource of the game that is never tracked on a leaderboard is experience. Yeah, you know, which is a super important, valuable resource, and you don't want to be out killing things without absorbing the experience for your hero. Also, and that's another reason why you're always going to travel on a stack. Yeah, but I think it makes you know kind of the battles and the tactics you know not as interesting as something like in a StarCraft. Yeah. 
When did the creep come into play with Warcraft Three? Uh, are you talking about the the? What's the right term for it? They're like the the, the, the guys on the map, yeah, the, yeah. the neutral. The well, I wasn't sure if you meant because creep is as a double use term. You know, we used it for the Zerg. Oops. Oh, sure, right, yeah, yeah. And then in in uh, Warcraft Three, we just refer them in the plural creeps. The creeps. <laughs> and it was funny because um, like that was not originally intended to be the shipping name for those. <laughs> I did this design doc. I have no idea whether they're even called creeps. They are. I mean, like... It was really know. funny because I did this design doc called, um, what is it, Critters, um, Critters, Creeps, and Chickens, I think it was. <laughs> okay. And it was really just a doc to describe the different types of uh, uh, ambient creatures that were going to be on a map. Because there's basically going to be what I call chickens, which mm-hmm. were um, completely ambient, like you couldn't select them. They're yeah, just like they're little, just there. They're yeah. just there, and they, yeah. they're really just artistic. And then critters were, um, you know, we'd had those in previous games where they're things you can you can kill, like sheep or something like that, but they don't have any sort of hostility. And again, they're kind of ambient mostly. Mm-hmm. And then creeps was definitely the the big new thing, right? Like those are going to be the things that, you know, again was trying. Like, they were meant to do multiple things. One thing is it really adds to that RPG experience. So you kind of could go out, you know, made the maps just way more interesting because, you know, you, they start feeling like these little RT, or RPG adventures rather than your typical kind of barren RTS map. Right. So it added a lot there. But the really important thing it did is it added, you know, something in the early game. Right. You know, because, again, we very quickly had challenges with... Well, if the only way you can get experience... Is you have to go against the other side. That's yeah. The stakes become really high. Right. And then, you know, the game, you know, is going to accelerate towards defeat pretty fast in the moment. And what would happen is, you know, the first battle would almost invariably be what decided the game, even if the game doesn't end for another five minutes. Yeah. That's the role, essentially, the barbarians play in a Civ game, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it lets people experience combat without having to, like, yeah. start moving into a war situation, which is, you know, which is a totally different type of game yeah. once you get to that. Um, okay. Um, you know, I find it interesting just the fact that it is, and this is such a side thing, but the fact that it is called, they're called creeps. That must mean that you guys communicated that name somehow to your community. Yeah. Because obviously that's your internal name and it wasn't, I assume, was it, that word was probably never actually in the game itself? Yeah, I don't think so. So somehow, I mean, in a way it's a sign that how closely tied you guys are to your community mm-hmm. that the word would spread it ex- externally like that. Yeah. I can't remember how, how it actually started spreading, but it, it was kind of funny because I was like, oh, I guess that's a thing now. <laughs> I guess that, that is another one of those lessons of, okay, be careful with words. What you name things, yeah, yeah. You, could be, you could be stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. All right, well, let's take, a, let's take a little break before we jump into, I guess, wow. <laughs> 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 